This week on Geek Explained, in part three of X May 2023, I'm joined by the godfather of X May, Doug from the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel, as we break down and define every era of X Men comics. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is part three of X-May 2023. We are on the other side of the X-May interlude, and I am joined this week by Doug from the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel as we are going to break down and define officially every era of X-Men comics. This has been a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, and it only felt right. It felt correct to bring in Doug, because he was the guest on the very first X-Men-focused episode of this podcast. I've been waiting to bring him back onto the X-Men train, because he's kind of the progenitor, the personal Professor X of mine when it comes to X-Men content on the podcast. So I'm really excited to share with you the conversation that we had defining every single era of X-Men comics. Uh, This is kind of a big week. And a lot of stuff has happened over the course of this past week. I got to participate in two very, very, very cool things that happened Um, on Saturday as I'm recording this and as you are listening to this. I got to be part of this amazing audio radio play thingamajig for the Fallout for Hope uh, charity drive in support of the Alzheimer's Association. I got to do a panel with them This is now a week and a half ago, and as I am recording this, as you are listening to this as of release, uh, that audio play will be dropping this weekend. Got to record it with a group of really cool and really talented people, so I'm excited for you all to hear that. And then this past Sunday... I got to be part of this amazing panel uh, as part of Comic-Con Revolution in Ontario, where I got to moderate a panel focused on found families and building families in comics alongside Chris Claremont and Marv Wolfman. Really, really cool stuff. I cannot thank the team behind Comic-Con Revolution Ontario enough for inviting me and having me host that panel. Um... Just just really cool things, really cool things, and it makes, you know, doing stuff like this, doing a podcast, um, all the more worth it. So I hope you have all had a really great week. Um, I also went and saw uh, Fast 10 or Fast X, uh, which is a movie. <laughs> um, it, I, I don't think it's, you know, for me personally, going to rank in the top of the um of the franchise all time, but I think it was a really solid entry and it kind of opens the door to, I think the surprise of no one, uh, leaving off on a cliffhanger for the final 
film or films to come up. Uh, Vin Diesel dropped a little bit of uh, rumor and speculation on the red carpet premiere for this film that we might not be getting a part two, but both a part two and part three, closing this out with a brand new trilogy uh, to send off the Fast and Furious series in style. I also finished Jedi Survivor this week, so lots of complicated feelings. And uh, we've got the series finale of The Flash uh, happening this Wednesday as of this recording today. As of this episode dropping, um, I'll be talking more about that in our weekly review, uh, where this week I'll be talking about last week's episode, and next week I'll be talking about the series finale. Lots of complicated feelings, uh, so we're going to break that down a little bit later. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned after the jump for all of that. But without further ado, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I and Doug from the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel define every era of X-Men comics. X-Men debuted and became Marvel's Merry Mutants. And here we are 60 years later, looking back on six decades of comics. And I know what you're thinking as a young and impressionable mind just getting into X-Men comics. What the hell is all of this it's 60 years of history different writers different stories different teams different directives and we decided to sit down and discuss what the eras of the x-men comics are because as comics have gone along since their inception there have been different ages let's say we've got the bronze age silver age golden age you've heard all those terms before but is there a golden age of x-men comics is there a silver age is there a bronze age we are going to get into it here we're going to be talking about six decades of stories and defining definitively that's where you get defined from the eras of x-men comics so hopefully this is helpful for you if either you are a longtime X-Men comic fan or whether you're looking for a place to start. If any of these eras gel with you or if our descriptions of these eras gel with you, dive in. It's really fun. It's There's a discussion for, I think, everybody in every comic and every age of comics that comics are really difficult to get into because of all the continuity but the fun thing about the x-men is that in each of these eras there's a little soft reset and you get to dive in headfirst sometimes into freezing cold water with the comics and the mutants that you have come to know and love but i know what you're also thinking eric you've been saying we you've been saying our you've been saying us what do you mean by that? Well, of course, I am joined by, I would venture to say, my resident expert, uh, my resident X-Men historian, Doug from the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel. Doug, welcome back. 
Thank you so much for having me back. Always love being here. Yeah, and I love having you on. And for those of you who aren't aware, Doug has become the archivist for the X-Men <laughs> on Comic Tube. Uh, if you have a question, if you have a uh, curiosity for what's going on in the X-Men comics right now, Doug has you covered. He's got videos on videos and recently released a gigantic monolith of the Jonathan Hickman era for the X-Men and just recently dropped the aftermath of that Jonathan Hickman era as we head into the destiny of X and fall of X. So needless to say, Doug, I think you're fairly well acquainted with the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I never really thought about it just because um, the Hickman era was such a a huge jumping on point for me. It really like reinvigorated uh, what I liked, but I actually started very young. Um, I started through um, uh, one of those um, Marvel Masterworks collections, like mm. the, the silver covers uh, that just bound a bunch of old stories together. Um, actually started with uh, one of the entries on this list, which I'm not going to give away because we're going to get into that because he but... knows he's a proper <laughs> content creator he knows that you gotta wait for it i've been on here uh, uh, enough to know that i gotta <laughs> learn from my mistakes <laughs> but yeah um x-men have always been a part of my life and it's it's fascinating kind of coming back to them over the decades and seeing how they change how they evolve how they devolve somehow <laughs> stuff gets really weird sometimes sometimes oh yeah yeah it's it's fascinating when you kind of break it down and doug and i were chatting about it uh before we got on mic here but it's almost weirdly cyclical how the x-men comics go and we're going to be getting into it, but I want to ask you, you mentioned it before, the X-Men Masterworks. Was that how you were introduced to the X-Men? Uh, yeah, actually. I know a lot of people cite uh, the animated series, and I definitely mm. got to that later. Um, uh, friends were into that, and they got me into that. But yeah, I, I actually read the, um, I guess what a lot of people would consider the like the more classic or well-known comics first. And that kind of, that got me into, oh man, I can't, I can't give away any of the, the things because they're <laughs> all on the list. That's the problem. Uh, but I, I definitely hopped around yeah. uh, some of the different eras here and there. I wouldn't say I've like read any particular run all the way through. Well, actually, no, I've read all, all of the Hickman and like the, the latest era, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, X-Men is so fun because you can kind of sort of sample from just about any spot in their history and you're always going to land on your feet. Yeah. It's fascinating how much it is, how easy it is at times to get into X-Men comics. Cause like I was saying earlier, the, I think the big barrier of entry for a lot of people getting into comics is it's like, oh, there's so much continuity or there's so much, you know, history to get into both like in canon and also like in publication history. But with the X-Men, they have several great jumping on points that even if you know nothing about them are really new reader friendly. Yeah. And if, if you're listening to this and just thinking like, 
getting into a comic is too daunting, please. Continuity is a lie. It's imaginary. <laughs> you can hop in anywhere and you will you'll find your way. That's I, I think that's the magic of comics. You can literally start anywhere and as long as you can kind of I mean, it, it's kind of like reading just subway signs. You yes. can end up anywhere and just be like, oh, so I go from here to here and then here to here. And and you do fall into a rhythm. Yeah. What, one of the best things about and one of the things that I remember loving when I first started reading comics was finding out, OK, the story I'm reading. Wait a second. That referenced something. Hold on. There was a whole story about this. There were dinosaurs in Manhattan. What the hell? And like going back and like reading stuff that had already been collected, had already been out. And you oftentimes don't have to suffer through the weight of finishing a story. You can read it all in one sitting or a binge read. It's it's fascinating how well the X-Men are able to do that. And I guess, you know, we should probably just get into it so that Doug can mm -hmm. speak freely because he's he's been holding it. I can see the vein, the vein on the side of the forehead. He's like, he wants to talk about this. So I always want to talk about this. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's D a problem. Doug is one of, like I said, one of the greatest historians in comic tube history. And it's interesting as well, because I want to reference this. You may have kicked off X-Men coverage on this podcast because years back it's it feels crazy to say that but years ago Doug and I sat down and we rebuilt the X-Men for the right. first time and that was one of the very first X-Men coverage episodes on the podcast and it's snowballed since then so in a way you kind of are the godfather of X-Men uh, I just want to reiterate that because I know uh, the Comics Collective recently rebuilt the X-Men and I feel like I need to defend my spot. <laughs> I'm, I'm not into pro wrestling, but I'm like, I'm aware of the terminology. Yes. I'm keeping, I'm keeping this unofficial X-Belt <laughs> that you've given me. You, you, will, you will be receiving a replica in the mail. Don't you worry. Nice. Um, you can hang it right above the mantle. But uh, but yeah, so it was it only made sense as we are in our third X-Men to finally bring Doug in. And let's just talk about this. Let's talk about yeah. 60 years of X-Men history. Is it wild to you that we're at that 60 year point for them? It's so funny. Like you, you get invested in a character and you think, man, like I I really do like this character. And then you realize just the enormity of everything they have 100%. and it just it it puts that whole relationship into perspective because i do think a lot of these titles are institutions in their own like there are amazing creators and amazing teams and not everybody kind of gets their time in the spotlight but um the fact that we remember these stories and the fact that like eventually we we do kind of come back to the people who made them is uh it's always great to to kind of come back to and revisit totally agree so for this we have divided more or less 60 years of continuity into 12 distinct eras and we're going to be discussing each era in full not beat for beat blow for blow or else we'd be here for 60 years but yeah i'm gonna say 12 is too many eras <laughs> <laughs> 
12 is a lot of eras, but if we break it down, it's basically like a new era every five years, which Mm -hmm. is not at all how this is broken down, by the way. But... (laughs) But it's it's a lot of eras for continuity of one team and one specific corner of the Marvel Universe. But we're going to be talking about each era, where it started, where it ended, some stories that come to mind, as well as some creators that made that era what it was. So we're going to kick things off with what I have dubbed the first class era. This took place from 1963 to 1970. And uh, began everything with X-Men number one and rolled all the way through until X-Men number 66. There were other comics that came after that. However, most of those comics were just reprints of older issues (laughs) because at that point, the X-Men book had largely more or less been canceled. Um, Notable stories that I would like to highlight because I don't think a lot of people put a lot of highlight on this. Um, (laughs) The the first era isn't really looked back on fondly except for like that first issue and establishing those characters, establishing those, you know, ideas and those concepts. And then everyone's like, all right, and then read giant-sized X-Men and continue on from there. But there were some things that I really enjoyed. The first appearance of the juggernaut x-men issues 12 and 13 is a two-parter that i mean is one of the most terrifying juggernaut uh stories out of all of his appearances shout out to shout out to troy who i found out in one of our episodes is a big uh big juggernaut fan really oh you should you should ask him for the story it's amazing oh man um also want to reference uh the mutant master Mutant Master, uh, issues 37 through 39 of that original X-Men run. This was when they shed their training costumes and got actual costumes. This was when they graduated, quote unquote. Um, And it's great. It's a classic, you know, 60s coming of age story for them. And then this final gauntlet of issues 54 through 63, where they go from dealing with Havoc, to dealing with Sauron, to dealing with Sentinels, and then dealing with Magneto and the Savage Land. It is a blistering pace that those nine issues go through. And it is wild from page to page and issue to issue. I mean, I think that's the that's the Jack Kirby of it all, right? Yes. I think a lot of this original run was just Stan and Jack, which explains a lot of the just frankly bonkers tonal shifts (laughs) yes uh i mean i i've i really like jack kirby just because he is like the myth maker Mm. but i think you're totally right (laughs) them going from like very grounded sort of sci-fi sentinel stories to to sour on the dinosaur man is like something (laughs) else and that's not to say that they were the only creators that were, you know, big time in this. Roy Thomas ended up coming mm-hmm. on and writing a bunch as well. And he injected his own flavor. It's for those of you who aren't aware, Roy Thomas, I I think sometimes unfairly gets the Stan Lee Jr. label a lot because his style was very informed by Stan's at that point. But he had some great stories in that time. This period was largely just the OG5, though we can never forget the sixth X-Man, the Mimic. (laughs) And 
it's a lot of just like wacky like like doug said like wacky bullshit sometimes <laughs> like the also, idea yeah. of the mimic in general is just wild to me he basically looks like he's got the body of hank pre-blue <laughs> He's got Cyclops laser vision and he's got angels wings. And he's like, I am the sixth X-Man for two to three issues. And then I'm leaving. My, my favorite headcanon behind that is Jack was just like, we need another member of this group, but I can't think of any new powers. And Stan was just like, we'll just throw a bunch of them together. And that's just <laughs> what they came up with. Yeah, it's, it's, funny how wacky it is and i would recommend going back and checking these out because it is a a good like you said grounding of what would come up later on we get a lot of the concepts the sentinels get their first appearance obviously magneto and the brotherhood are showing up here um the savage land is sauron our our bosom buddies um but it's not the most well-known or i would say the most beloved of the eras that i think goes <laughs> to our second era which is the giant sized era and i mean fittingly the giant sized era took place in 1975 all the way through 1990 and kicked off with giant size x-men number one now where it ends can be up for debate but I kind of take it the ending of that era being the Muir Island saga, which was Uncanny X-Men 278 through 290 and X-Factor 70 or 69 and 70. Um, this is basically equated to the Chris Claremont era. This is where he kind of took the reins and began steering the the x-men this way and that um notable stories obviously giant size x-men for the reset that len ween and uh dave cockrum did but also i mean this had the dark phoenix saga of course uncanny x-men 129 through 138 uh days of future past the craziest story com confined to two issues at that point in time um this is also the era where god loves man kills that original graphic novel came out uh we got the first big um i would say the first big x-men quote-unquote event uh fall of the mutants with new mutants 59 through 61 uncanny x-men 225 to 227 and x-force 24 through 26 um and then also inferno what more is there to say with all of the Inferno nonsense that happened there? Uh, we did get a couple new books pop up during this time as well. The aforementioned uh, New Mutants dealing with kids being X-Men. Uh, X-Factor, where it's the old people being X-Men. <laughs> and then Excalibur, where British people are also X-Men. Um other creators that are really, really good uh, or deserve a spotlight during this era besides Claremont, Ween, and Cockrum. Uh, John Byrne was, a, was an artist for a large part of this. And of course, we have to always give alms to the Simonsons. And yeah, this is probably, I think, the most beloved era. What do you think about this? I mean, this is the era that I actually got into x-men nice I, um like i i think i've mentioned this before but i the first x-men comic i read was 
like the Marvel Masterworks collection, and the first issue is Giant Size X Men. Yeah, um, it's I I do think it's really funny that uh, a lot of um, credit is given to Claremont. I mean, it's it's appropriate since he spent like I I want to say what is it like 10 20 years on this yeah but giant size to me is the moment where everything changes like from the off so much of it is built around building this uh new team um actually there's a really funny anecdote like that that is entirely down to corporate mandate like I think around this time, Marvel was owned by this very nondescript sounding company called Cadence Industries. I have no idea what okay. they do. I know. It like it sounds like a, a company that sells like desktop computers or something. But, or like drum sets. Yeah. And they just kind of threw out the idea um, for broader appeal. They wanted to follow what Star Trek did. They wanted to make an international team. Mm. And that I'd, I'd argue transformed this group entirely. It made them, uh, you know, a, a team that reflects like the, the global nature of mutant culture. Right. You have, um, obviously Cyclops came back, but you have like a lot of the, the classic greats. You have Nightcrawler, you have Storm, you have Wolverine, you have my boy Colossus. Yes. I love that guy. <laughs> and uh, Thunderbird, who is a beloved Everyone, character. Everyone's who's favorite around, Thunderbird. He was around for years and years. <laughs> <laughs> He's an uh, integral part of that early uh, yeah. Claremont run. For those who aren't in the know, Thunderbird died a couple issues later. It was like the first or second issue. It's yeah. kind of unfortunate. Luckily, he has come back in the Krakoan era, and yeah, he's, and he's shout cool. out, shout out to Al Ewing who gave the funniest callback to that ever. Where Cable said, <laughs> yes. "Oh, you weren't around for that, were you? You had a plane to catch." <laughs> oh I, man, or of Thunderbird and Cable just guys being dudes at each oh, other I love that like i i love and i also love shout out to that book as well uh we'll talk about it a little bit later that thunderbird immediately bodies um vulcan upon seeing him it's an on-site yeah, yeah. thing because he's like oh you're a summers thumbs down i have i have to bully you forever he's got, he's got a history with those guys yes <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, from giant size, I think you're absolutely right. It immediately launches into the Claremont era. Um, shout out to Dallas from the Comics Collective for bringing this up, because something that I didn't know about the Claremont era is, I mean, obviously there are a lot of classic stories. You have um, Dark Phoenix, you have the Brood Saga, mm -hmm. and obviously all the explosive stuff that happened with like the launch of New Mutants and X-Factor. But I found out uh here's a fun little game to play um try and determine which story isn't just ripped directly from a movie that claremont liked <laughs> i kid you not the brood saga literally just aliens yeah. uh new mutants has i mean the story that introduces legion mm -hmm. uh david holler 
literally just the exorcist oh god and now i have this i have this game where i just go back through uh the claremont era and i'm like hmm is this a movie is it not a movie who's to say i mean you'd you'd be hard pressed to i mean days of future past the terminator like there you go yeah that's i had never thought of that before but that is hilarious <laughs> but yeah i think you're right it's it's curious to me that this is the era that kind of everyone goes back to. Like, no matter how far away from it we get, how much time goes by, Claremont and and I did want to make it specifically called the giant-sized era, not just the Claremont era, because of what you said with uh, with giant size being obviously that brainchild of Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. And now mm. I guess we can owe the X-Men to the Cadence group. Uh, but like there there are some of the most iconic stories in x-men history days of future past got a movie for god's sake dark phoenix saga i'm sure at some point we'll get a movie we certainly haven't gotten it yet but like the mass appeal of the x-men really reached i think its height because of the stories and the melodrama and the soap opera of this era because claremont knows how to write some soap operas boy does he i mean like just the fact that you brought in kitty pride and i think almost immediately she became part of a love triangle says (laughs) everything I, I do think like that that speaks to comics of the time and how they are now like yeah. they're long-running stories built around uh you know people having friction with each other i think there's something universal about that and claremont really and i mean really all of the writers that are and artists that are a part of this era know how to juggle ensemble casts like there's no books in this specific uh this specific era that to me are like oh well that solo character's story outshines the current x book not like things that would happen later on but like we also did get really cool stuff that happened in this era like i mean this was the lead up into wolverine goes to japan and this was the this is the era of Wolverine where he was like mm-hmm. everywhere, but not everywhere is the leading man. He was everywhere as the little gremlin boy that you just throw <laughs> into a book to be like, here's some chaos. Remember when uh, uh, I think it was Len Wein who suggested that he was actually just a mutant Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He wasn't a mutant at all. He was just a Wolverine that mutated and looked like a man. <laughs> And they didn't even they didn't even know what he looked like underneath the mask yeah. for like at least what five years or something. And it makes sense the first time he takes off his mask, his hair and face literally just look like the mask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this was this was formative when when I first went back and reread a lot of this. Like, I kind of fell in love with Wolverine in this era, like. I had obviously, like, I was a 90s kid, so I got into the X-Men because of the animated series, and Wolverine was cool there. But, like, the Claremont era, which the animated series pulls from heavily, often, really sold me on Wolverine as, like, an ensemble character. And I feel like that's been lost as modern comics have evolved. 
because everyone's like, oh, Wolverine's got to be the X-Man, which is false because Cyclops is the X-Man. But (laughs) he also like their whole relationship also is, I think, for me, between this and a later era is kind of at its peak for me. I love the two of them butting heads all the time. Um, it's also during this era where I believe uh, Storm absolutely bodies Cyclops to become the leader of the X-Men. That's Beats him so one. bad that he leaves the X-Men. <laughs> Beats him so bad without her powers. Without her way. powers. Yeah. Yeah, this this era definitely puts a spotlight on the characters, both as people as well as superheroes. And a lot of the melodrama and the character relationships that people love about these characters now were kicked off in this era. Um, like you, you already mentioned the the Kitty Pride love triangle. I mean, we got a lot of the uh, will they, won't they from Gene and Scott from this era, and then Gene dies, and then it's the will they, won't they with Scott and Maddie. Except the question is now, will he or won't he leave his wife and child? And you get both a, and this wouldn't be the first time this happens, you get both a death and a rebirth for Gene in this era, as well as a few different roster changes. Like you already mentioned the the new roster we would get in Giant Sized, but getting into the some of the, the rosters and the characters that would become X-Men during this era, it's fascinating. I... It's so funny you should bring back Giant Size, because I have this thing saved. Uh, Giant Size actually ends with um, like a, just a bonkers twist. After they build this new X-Men team, uh, their first mission is to save the old X-Men team, who were apparently like presumed dead for a yeah, decade. Just... And, oh my gosh. And like long story short, it ends with one of the funniest panels in X-Men history which is Angel saying, which brings us to our next little problem. What are we going to do with 13 X-Men? As if that was the maximum number they were going to reach. They you can't no get into idea. double digits. You can't. Do oh. Angel's just like, wait a second. Our, our quota is way off here. What are Smash we doing? Smash cut to 30 years later. The X-Men are a nation. The X-Men are everyone. Everyone is an X-Man, whether they know it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. Because, like, it's true, too, though. Like, you get this, I personally believe, much more interesting group of X-Men as opposed to the, you know, the OG5. And then they're like, well, what are we going to do about you guys? And everyone, including the readers, like, no, what are we going to do about you guys? Because we're over you. <laughs> it's that uh, it's that meme of Andy tossing Woody aside. Yes. I don't want to play with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, the, the X-Men through this get a couple different roster shakeups and we introduce like you mentioned a much more diverse uh group of characters into the team and it's not just diverse in their life experiences but they're also like this is an x-men of many nations and you get characters from russia you get characters from africa you get characters from 
that strange place that I don't believe really exists, Canada. Like, can you believe they created an entire nation just for X-Men comics? It's just a bunch of mutated Wolverines up there. (laughs) It's just an entire nation of just Wolverines, and some of them can walk and talk. I mean, it makes me think, is Chip Zdarsky a Wolverine? I'd be- 100%. He's a rabid animal. We've all seen it. But you get to also, like we mentioned, like you get to deal with the kind of expansion of the concept of X-Men, like bringing in a team for the new mutants of like, okay, these are going to be the trainees and we're going to watch them deal with all the stuff that would later be perfected in X-Men Evolution, which is a masterpiece and is completely untouchable. And then we also got to see a little bit more of the exploration of the magical side of the Marvel Universe with Excalibur. We got to see how the OG5 deal with the new uh, status quo of mutants in the world with X-Factor. And you got to see this expansion of the concept and really got to enjoy all of the different styles of stories that could be told underneath that umbrella. And, uh, I mean, on top of that, too, it's really interesting because uh, later on, uh, I think you mentioned uh, the Simonsons at one point. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Louise Simonson because she had the idea. I think Claremont came up with the idea of what would become the Mutant Massacre. Yeah. And Louise Simonson talked to him and basically said, well, we have all of these X books. What if we make it like a crossover between them? And I mean, through that, basically redefined comic book storytelling what comics are capable of and um i mean the medium i don't think has ever been the same since it's so true and that also i mean took characters from across the marvel universe and crossed them over with each other like this is when the x-men run up against thor for the first time yeah and it's like wait a second like, the, yes, they all obviously were in the same world, but, like, actually establishing them and putting them together, you know, that that was the Infinity War of the times. Like, oh, my God, we're going to see Storm interact with Thor, and we're going to see, you know, Daredevil run across other X-Men. Like, it was, like you said, like, a changing of what could be done with comic books. And big events largely owe their success and their concept to stuff like mutant massacre so much is tossed around the x line now i guess the the term x line yeah uh i never really thought about it but this is kind of like the foundation of that this is the idea that x-men isn't just a flagship title or a flagship book it is this ever-expanding idea yeah and uh i mean I don't remember where it, I think I got it from the the visual dictionary of X-Men because I had that as a kid too. There's a quote that Stan Lee said where um, I think I think when he recounts like the development of the X-Men, he says, I practically created a bunch of rabbits because I had no idea how they were going to multiply and multiply. <laughs> and I mean, I it's funny that as you get more books, you kind of get a more defined picture of not just like 
all of the different directions you can take these superheroes in, but like how varied and complex the mutant metaphor becomes. Right. Because it isn't just unique to one group or one experience. It it encompasses basically uh, all walks of life. And I find that to, that to me is the most interesting aspect of, of these characters and what they do. For sure. There's a... I don't remember which, but I think it might have been God Loves Man Kills, or it might have been one of the other uh, crossovers, but they did that incredible uh, marketing where it was like showing the kids and it's like had the mutant branding on one of them. It's like, do you know what your children are? And it's like, there's something terrifying in that, but there's also something kind of magical to your point in that where it's like, yeah, anybody could be a mutant. Anybody could be an X-Man. And watching the, I guess, the evolution of the concept that had been, you know, defined initially in 1963 and watching it grow and expand and become this flagship for Marvel and for comic books in general, like, it's pretty amazing to see how that all turned out in just the second of 12 eras. (laughs) Oh my God, we've we've only we've only reached the second era. We've only talked about two of them, Doug. Oh no! But not all of them were going to be this in depth. Let's yeah, just put true. that on the table. But yeah, this one I think is probably one of the most successful eras of the X Men for sure. Not just monetarily, but also when it comes to narrative and character growth. And so we are going to move on from the second era into the third era, which is the blue and gold era. This one took place from 1991 to the year 2000 into the new millennium and kicked off with X-Men number one. The big, you know, sold a bajillion copies and is in everyone's home. You just don't know it yet. If you peel back... The, the paint and the wallpaper on your walls, you will find a copy of X-Men number one. Um, and it ended with the Revolution event, which began with Claremont and ended with Claremont. Um, notable stories from this time, uh, the Extinction Agenda, a big crossover again between New Mutants, Un- Uncanny X-Men, and X-Factor. Um, Fatal Attractions, a big crossover that brought a lot of the both X-Men and non-X-Men stories together. Uh, Onslaught, which might have been the old jumping of the shark for the X-Men in the uh, the mid-90s. But then we would also get, of course, I think the most well-known out of all of them, Legion Quest slash Age of Apocalypse. And then the best out of all of them, the Twelve! Y'all remember the 12? Because I do. (laughs) Let me tell you, this Mr. Sinister character, I can't see him going anywhere. No, definitely not. There's no future for him. (laughs) But uh, we would see the evolution of different books. uh, The spirit of of some ideas that had been established in the Claremont era would be fleshed out in books like X-Force, where they took the new mutants and said, okay, but what if black ops military and then generation x which is what if new mutants but cool 90s rad awesome 
And this is probably the height of X-Men popularity. At least up to this point, certainly. X-Men was literally everywhere. It had cartoons. It had comic books. It had toys. It was everywhere you looked, there was an X-Man. Notable creators during this time, obviously, uh, Claremont's kicked things off, but then very quickly left, uh, which left storytelling to creators like Fabian Nitzietza, uh, Scott Lobdell, Jim Lee, and <sighs> Rob Liefeld. Everybody's favorite, Rob Liefeld. Everyone's pal, Rob Liefeld. Um, do you have any any fond memories of this era or any specific stories or creators that you that kind of make this blue and gold era what it is i i have a lot of memories about this era let me tell you what (laughs) he didn't Um, say he didn't immediately say positive memories i want you all to notice that oh boy uh i mean it's so funny because i i remember a lot about onslaught and it it completely passed through my mind that just in the middle of this we're dealing with um heroes heroes reborn yeah. like the this is like the what would become the precursor to secret wars later where marvel kills the marvel universe yes. <laughs> then kind of sort of rebuilds it and then actually decides you know what we're just going to go back to normal yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it's interesting because I I can see a lot of fascinating concepts for stories in this era, but I I think you're right. Like, it's it's X Men at their most monetarily successful. Yes. But when you look at where the comics medium was, where the industry was at this point in time, uh, they were kind of just throwing everything at the wall to see if it would stick because we were teetering right on this big speculator boom Mm -hmm. and i'm pretty sure x-men number one actually had a big hand in that there were like a bajillion variant covers the 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 holographic foil covers yeah the big wraparound where you have to collect every single variant to get the full picture and uh i don't know i i do have some fond memories uh just of i guess primarily the aesthetics of the time uh this is i i'd argue this is the most iconic look in x-men history this is mm-hmm. where cyclops gets like the the bandolier and yep uh kind of think of it a lot of a lot of really famous characters were popping up in this era too like this is where deadpool kind of yeah. came into being and gambit and um it's where cable was popularized yeah that's right and all cable of his many pouches <laughs> cable in his giant shoulder pads the biggest shoulder pads i've ever seen in my entire life man i saw a this was a few years back at a at a comic con i saw a cosplay of someone who did liefeld accurate cable with how did they even stand up with those i have no idea just just absolute shoulders of steel like he was walking around with the giant just the largest shoulder pads i've ever seen in my entire life and it was incredible (laughs) but yeah you're absolutely right like they basically said 
we are too big to fail. So we are just going to try our hardest. And, and then they killed the Marvel Universe. And they did. And it's so true. Because they were basically like, we're going to kill the entire Marvel Universe, except for the ones that are selling really well, which is Spider-Man and the X-Men. Yeah. Everyone else can bite it. And we're going to do a reboot. And that reboot did not go well. But honestly, I mean... Age of Apocalypse is still, like, I still look back on that event fondly. It was the first ever X-Men comics I ever read. Mm. I went directly from, yeah, this X-Men animated series is cool, to what the fuck is happening? What is this? Who are these people? Why? Why? Where is Xavier? Oh, he's dead? Like, mm -hmm. that was a a hard whiplash for me as everybody a, who's as a young evil boy. is good everybody who's good is evil nothing makes sense up is down dogs cats and, and cats dogs are... <laughs> living together it's raining men hallelujah <laughs> i don't know what's happening here but we would see like an evolution through this of the concept of the x-men right we would get an x-men gold team and an x-men blue team as storm took hold of the better team and mm -hmm. cyclops led the more famous team uh we would see that later on following the events of like the 12 and stuff claremont would come back to do revolution and that was heralded as like claremont's back he's gonna write the ship and everything's gonna be great and tldr it wasn't <laughs> just it wasn't um it's it's unfortunate too because like with all the goodwill that was built up from the giant sized era coming into the blue and gold era, they literally could have expanded and built it up even more. But they were like, we are going to sit atop our stacks of money and throw matches at the ground and see what happens. And it's 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 unfortunate, but yeah, it did pave the way. For the next era which is much beloved this is the millennium era which took place from 2001 to 2003 uh kicked off with new x-men number 114 and ended with new x-men number 154 uh notable creators during this time grant morrison grant morrison grant morrison grant morrison they took the x-men from here and took them to here this being an audio format, you have no idea what I just did, but use your <laughs> imagination. Um, also, Frank Quitely, Chris Bacalo, and one name that I have grown to love more than I had previously, Chuck Austin. Um, this was the era where Morrison basically came in and they were like, okay, the X-Men are tanking. We are going to move claremont off of uncanny x-men to extreme x-men and we are going to move the regular uncanny x-men and put them in australia and give them to chuck austin and grant we're gonna give you new x-men and grant decided you know what they cracked their knuckles and they said i'm just gonna give you the best x-men thing in a really long time uh, stories that I would absolutely recommend from this time is for extinction, which kicked off everything. The first three issues of that new X-Men run, uh, new worlds, riot at Xavier's planet X. And of course the thing that 
more or less ended the story, Here Comes Tomorrow. You would notice that all of these are from New X-Men. And there is a reason. Because New X-Men was the best X-Book going on at the time. No disrespect to, to Claremont or to Chuck Austin, but they were playing chess while Grant Morrison was playing th- 4D checkers while also, you know, getting ready to deal out a hand and go fish. Like, they had such a handle on everything that was going on, and they reinvented what it meant to be a mutant. They turned it from being fear, feared and hated to being a celebrity and dealt with social issues. They dealt with the Genosha incident, which we'll talk about in a second. But they also oh dealt with, you know, the idea of cultural appropriation, how everyone suddenly wanted to be a mutant. Everyone suddenly wanted to be an X-Man. Doug, what do you, what did you, do you have any memories of this, this particular era or any stories that you really love? Yeah. I mean, like so many uh, instances where I got into comics, uh, like a friend of mine uh, basically just had a bunch of these. It's so funny because uh, at that point, I think X-Men were more defined by the movies than anything. So like at first glance, I saw the, like the uniforms, thought, thought it looked too much like the movie. And I thought, well, I already saw one. I don't need more of the same (laughs) years later though. I came back to it because I, I wasn't a young idiot uh, and I gave it a chance and it completely blew open everything I expected, assumed and cherished about X-Men. I think Grant, I mean, for, for everything we, we gave credit to with obviously Lee, Len Wein and um, Dave Cockrum and then later Claremont and Byrne, I think Grant builds on that to like the nth degree Mm. uh it's like you said you know the first big opening salvo is e is for extinction what what an opening move and then from there it just gets crazier yeah i don't know how you can top something like that but that's the magic of what grant can do they just keep thinking bigger and bigger and bigger and i i mean even coming back to it now new x-men lives up to its name everything feels like i like i've never experienced it before everything is changing and um obviously just how they collaborate with frank quietly mm-hmm. i mean i i want to give a special shout out to both Owen Likes Comics and Patrick H. Willems, 100%. who gave these incredible deep dives on the first page of New X-Men yeah. and just how it set the tone for everything. The idea of um, just opening matter-of-factly with Cyclops going, you can stop that now. And you just you see them in like the, the new uniforms. They're dismantling Sentinels like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And just gets crazier yeah and and you're absolutely right you listener you should go check out their videos on that uh former x-may alumni uh patrick h willems and owen likes comics but the that declarative statement you're absolutely right was the sign as much as giant sized was for that era like this is something new we are going to be telling a new story and we're going to be redefining what it means to be 
a mutant. And you, 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 you mentioned it. We referenced it already. That Genosha incident, incident. They kick things off with let's murder the entire continent of Genosha. And I mean, you want to talk about big swings. Grant swung for the fence and they did not stop. Um, giving us new ways to look at certain characters, uh, diving deeper into... This is one of my favorite depictions of the Cyclops and Jean Grey relationship, which is hilarious to say because their relationship deteriorates to the point of them separating, basically. Uh, but looking at these people and their their viewpoints and their, you know, their perspectives on themselves and each other is fascinating this is also the the era that gave us uh everyone's thirst trap emma frost um she walked in and decided i am an x-man now and there is nothing you can do about it and she has had a hold on x-men fans ever since mm -hmm. uh, this also i mean kick things off again with murdering everyone at genosha and possibly wiping the slate clean for magneto like magneto doesn't show up he doesn't show up canonically he never shows up uh, but we also get you know continuing those threads that we had seen previously you know we get this spotlight on xavier's school which i love i feel like anytime they put a specific um a specific emphasis on the school life and on the kids learning to be x-men you're in for some good x-men stories and that's where we get stuff like riot and xavier's where quentin choir did nothing wrong and <laughs> ultimately this does end with gene gray's second of however many deaths but we also get this beautiful you know relationship that kind of blossoms between scott and emma and watching that go on at the same time that uh, Wolverine is back to being just a grumpy, hairy gremlin man throughout most of that era, because the, the, the 90s knew they were like, OK, Wolverine's our bread and butter now. We are putting him in literally everything. <laughs> Morrison looked at this short king and was like, no, you are my little goblin and you will be my little goblin until I am done with you. And they proceeded to make him the ugliest he's ever been up till mm -hmm. that point to their credit. And I love it. Um, he also refuses to wear a shirt the entire time. He refuses to wear a single shirt. He wears <laughs> like the, uh, the snow pants, you yeah. know, you've, you've got the big pants with the overall buckles, but no shirt. And then just mm -hmm. a jacket over top of that like fashion. It's icon. He, he continues to to haunt the dreams of everyone who's ever walked into <laughs> a fashion designer's room. Um, but also, like, this was a time of experimentation with when it comes to the art. Frank Quitely, this was really what put them on the map and really mm -hmm. solidified him as a force in comics. We had seen previously with, uh, uh, with his work with I believe was Flex Mentala before this. Yeah, yeah, Flex Mentala yes. was in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, but this was kind of what everyone was like. Holy shit, Frank Quitely rules, and 
just didn't stop from there. Uh, I already mentioned Chris Boccolo, one of my favorite artists, really got his, you know, got his feet wet during this era. Um, just really good stuff. And I mean, uh, I guess beyond that too, just talking about the larger storytelling, I, I feel like I kind of breezed past it by just saying everything feels new, but Grant's almost made it their mission to upend everything about x-men mm-hmm. I, I do think um you you obviously mentioned making mutants into a global subculture yeah. but even beyond that like the the dynamics are different um there's the evolution of uh gene and scott there's the evolution of gene and emma together mm-hmm. um oh gosh i beast becomes a cat man that's right. Yeah, Beast becomes a cat man. Uh, he's also involved in some really murky decisions, and that is not the last time that that is going to happen to that guy. And it won't even be the worst things that he does. Man. That's for later. Oh boy, we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, it's. I do think it was the first real moment where I looked at a comic. And I realized that these characters are ever evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really take all of this history and play with that, but you can also take all of those different building blocks and make something entirely new that could obviously set the stage for something even newer down the line. Yeah. They, they, the thing that I love that Grant Morrison did with them was as we kind of mentioned before, they evolved what the idea of what stories we could tell with these characters was. Now it wasn't just about superheroics. It wasn't just about, you know, oh, we got to fight them Sentinels again. It was, okay, we need to look at what it means when people are saying, oh, I want to deal, I want to become a mutant. You know, they this is when they brought in uh, MGH, mutant growth hormone, and started dealing with all of that. Like, the and everyone talks about how good grant morrison's x-men is for a reason it is not hyperbole it is not you know just jumping on the bandwagon because it's good it is literally that good and once again went back to their roots of not being you know premier superheroes like they were during the blue and gold era but being representation for the oppressed and turning it on its head and basically saying no now we are the ones that are reclaiming some of our time and some of our space and and yeah it was it was a really great um maturation almost of the idea of the x-men which brings us to a very short-lived uh era immediately following this this was the reload era Reload with a capital R and a capital L because Marvel <laughs> Comics cannot help itself. Um, more, more like re. What a huge load! Oh, jeez. Um, this took place from 2004 to 2005, so blink and you miss it. Uh, kicked off with Astonishing X Men number one and ended with the House of M crossover event. Uh, notable creators during this time: uh, Greg Pak, Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, Joss Whedon and John Cassidy. Some of my favorite stories from this era. Uh, Gifted. Astonishing X-Men 1 through 6 kind of put them back on the world stage as quote-unquote superheroes. 
as well as Unstoppable from that same Astonishing X-Men run of uh, issues 19 through 24. And we also got Phoenix Endsong, which more or less shut the door on Jean Grey for good for now. And then obviously, as, as mentioned before, House of M, which brought everything crashing down for the X-Men. Uh, I do want to give a shout out, though, because this era, the reason why I made that pun up at the start of this <laughs> intro was because this also marked the move from Chuck Austin from um, Extreme X-Men to the flagship Uncanny X-Men. Yeah. And he had a uh, very short but very controversial run <laughs> that I think is maybe capped off with the most bonkers concept i have ever heard for an x-men story which basically involves nightcrawler becoming the pope that has become a personal <laughs> favorite of mine it's i don't want to call it good but i want to call it <laughs> ambitious it was it was definitely that um yeah. i have a fondness for this era because i love that astonishing x-men run i know oh, yeah. that it's hella problematic when you look at how certain characters are portrayed and of mm -hmm. course at the writer, but I, I love the idea that they wanted to say, let's make the X-Men superheroes again. If only for a moment, a moment, <laughs> a blink in, a, a, a blip in time, let's make them heroes again and make them, you know, colorful. And these are some of my favorite costumes. This for, for my money is still quite possibly the best cyclops costume it's always a toss-up but this also continued on the the development of the scott and emma romance which i love um this began wolverine's uh wolverine's era of foster's home for imaginary kids uh <laughs> where he began to bond with other kids that weren't jubilee and kitty pride aka armor this is when armor shows up um, and again, we do get a big uh, focus on Xavier's Institute with introducing characters like Armor, like Blink, or not Blink, not, uh, Beak, and other characters of that ilk. And I just, I really enjoy a lot of the stuff that happened in this. Maybe not as a whole, maybe not, you know, <laughs> looking at it from a certain angle, but there were really cool things about this. And obviously, oh, yeah. I mean, in astonishing X-Men, especially that John Cassidy art is F's kiss. Mm -hmm. And again, everything kind of came crashing down with house of M, <laughs> which was just a lot. It was just a lot. Brian, Michael Bendis. Uh... <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a well-known name in the X-Men community. Is he well-liked? Uh, depends on who you ask. <laughs> that is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because House of M did a lot for the X-Men. I think a lot of people... The, the reason why House of M gets so much ire is because of two things. Obviously, one is it takes the X-Men, or I guess the, the mutants as a whole, and puts them on the back foot again. Mm -hmm. And I kind, of, I kind of get the motivation behind that. It's, 
I'm, it's not the best way, but it's basically resetting them to the status that they had pre Morrison, which yeah. is they're kind of um, operating in secret. You know, they're they're not as well known. They're not as big. Uh, but it also um, had to, I'm going to say, massage a bunch of characters to make that happen, specifically... Uh, <laughs> That's a very Scarlet... nice way of putting that. Yeah. Uh, specifically Scarlet Witch. I think uh, she really gets a raw deal mm-hmm. in this. Um, one, because it's, it's kind of first hinted that... Um, she would even consider something like this. Um, you know, the line no more mutants has taken on just a meaning of its own yeah. as people have reflected on it years later. But there's also another decision that I don't want to spoil if you want to read it that I think removes Wanda's agency entirely. Yeah. Uh, that I'm not a fan of. No, it's it's real unfortunate. I yeah. I like House of M as an event. I think it's them deciding to do that, especially having the balls to be like, let's do Age of Apocalypse again. But yeah. for a very a much smaller amount of time and making it more utopic than the than obviously the absolute just post-apocalyptic age of uh, apocalypse world but there are certain choices made both leading up to and in that story that make you scratch your head sometimes on why did we think that this was gonna work why did we think this was okay i mean on the other hand it did set the stage for a lot of great stories to come so i i like to think there are no bad comics just sort of Oh, disagree. Well, I will here's disagree. A, there's an important caveat here. <laughs> I like to say there there are no bad comics, but sort of just comics that weren't executed in the way that they should have been. I think the idea is always there. It mm-hmm. just comes down to a question of how do you make it happen? That's fair. I, I You know what? That is, that is a fair stance. Um, though I, I would... I would, I would love to challenge you to read Superman Year One and tell me there are no bad comics. Okay, well you got me there. You backed <laughs> me into a corner on that one. But as as Doug mentioned, this did set the stage for some really cool stories following that. And in the next era, known as the Decimation Era, from 2006 to, to 2011. Um, Obviously, the kickoff was that decimation event, but it ended with Avengers versus X-Men. More on that later. Um, but stories that I really... It's its funny, because I and I think you and I are of the same mind of this. The decimation era is hella underrated. Yeah. It is one of those periods of time for the X-Men that isn't, I think, largely looked looked at favorably. But when you get into the nitty gritty and you read the stories that were going on at the time, shit slaps. It's real good. Uh, stories like Decimation, Deadly Genesis, uh, the Messiah trilogy, it, I think mm-hmm. is peak X-Men storytelling. Messiah Complex, Messiah War and Second Coming, um, the Utopia crossover where we get X-Men versus Norman Osborn. I 
love this story. Uh, Which, by the way, uh, shout out to Matt Fraction on X-Men. Yes. I've always been a Matty Frax guy. I love his run on X-Men and just everything they do and how uh, how much he's able to kind of queue up for other people down yeah. the line. Matt Fraction is an interesting case in that I feel like when he's got complete hold on a character or a team, he does really, really well. See Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen or mm-hmm. see his Hawkeye run. Uh, but when he's like kind of beholden to other char- to other characters and other lines, it gets a little shaky. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I would rank his X Men's his run specifically in like my top five. But you are absolutely right. He really gets creative in the stories that you can tell. Um, this is when asteroid m has fallen from the atmosphere and is now off the coast of san francisco so the x-men go west coast uh yeah. west coast west coast uh you get to see okay, listen <laughs> hold on hold on hold on. ah damn it i thought he was gonna let me sneak that in i'm not gonna let you get i'm not gonna let you get one past me <laughs> but we do get to see kind of the the new idea of x-men as like a separate nation you know nation x and all of the ideas that would later be largely expanded upon in future eras but this is also where we got a story like schism and age of x where in schism in age of x they basically say let's do age of apocalypse again but in schism they're like let's take our two kind of flagship guys cyclops and wolverine And let's split them down the middle and send them on their merry way, which is where we get two of my favorite books in all of X-Men history, that being Wolverine and the X-Men and Uncanny X-Force. I am a Uncanny X-Force ride till I die basic bitch for the rest of my life. I will always tell people to read that book. And Wolverine and the X-Men continues on that train of, like I said, focusing on the kids you got to do it for the kids and creators that i think really shine in this era uh you already mentioned mac fraction but also ed brubaker jason aaron mm-hmm. rick remender um this was one of the first times that trevor Harrison came across my radar that's right uh we also got some crazy good art from david finch clay mann the late great Carlos Pacheco, and of course, Jerome Pena. Like this was a, like I said, this was a cavalcade of really good stories and really good creators that unfortunately kind of gets lost in the shuffle when you look at the wider X-Men picture. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. And I do think, I mean, going back to Fraction, I you can see that in his story. Like the mm-hmm. fact that it kind of just ends one issue and then hops to another run. Yeah. You see a lot of that during this because I think there was a lot of just stop and start, different directions. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it makes it feel massive. It makes it feel like you're experiencing a lot of this earth-shattering history in real time. But at the same time, I don't think any creator really gets the chance to explore their own vision for the x-men yeah. i think it's kind of just, it, it almost feels like a, a series of hired guns writing um 
the larger, I guess, status quo rather than a narrative. Uh, that said, I love what you, I love what you touched on with schism and specifically Cyclops and Wolverine doing their own thing. I think that might be the best development to come out of this because I mean, not only is it a great callback to professor X and Magneto kind of splitting based on their differences. Uh, it to me, I think laid the groundwork for what I see as the defining story for X-Men over the last decade, which is mutant kind is one species. Yeah. You know, the, um, decimation in particular tells me that like survival only works when we're all working together Mm -hmm. it's it's so true and that unification that came about because of the decimation because of m day really helped to focus the line again which was nice Mm -hmm. i can't get out of my head the idea that you just posited of like a bunch of these hired guns walking into i just picture like the expendables rolling up into marvel offices each of them with their own x book and they're like we're gonna figure this out we're gonna write some x like i I forgot to mention mark miller wrote ultimate x-men at some point during all this lord i was gonna (laughs) skip past that we gotta cover everything eric Uh... nothing yeah, you're right. Um, that happened. Shout out to Malcolm who uh, did the hard work <laughs> last year and read all of Un- Ultimate X Men so that me and Jacob didn't have to in the book. Malcolm, why would you do that to yourself? He is a gentleman and a scholar, and sometimes I think he hates himself, which is why he puts himself through these things. But yeah, the the stories that we get out of this and some of the books that we do get out of this is really, I mean, it's some some of its peak X Men. And then you also get, you know, recontextualizations of certain things. I mean, Deadly Genesis brought in the idea and finally gave us the third Summers brother. Everybody's favorite Summers brother. My favorite Summers brother. I'll tell you that right now. There are no bad Summers brothers. Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) You're right. You're right. Adam X is, uh, is, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. But, (laughs) But this did pave the way for i think maybe one of my favorite eras which was the now era from Mm -hmm. 2012 to 2014 this kicked off with avengers versus x-men which they had been building to in the decimation era slowly building up this utopia this x-men island to obviously come into into contact and conflict with the avengers because the avengers are cops don't let anyone tell you otherwise uh (laughs) clint literally tries to arrest somebody the first time they meet he does it's so true um but this era did of course end as everything else did with secret wars and the end of all things um but this era began with avengers vs. x-men this gigantic crossover probably the biggest event yet to be adapted to anything when it comes to marvel comics and I mean, don't you worry, it's coming. Eventually, we're going to see it. You know it's going to happen. But Avengers vs. X-Men was this great radicalization of Cyclops, which is, of course, music to my ears. I love the journey. One day, one day, 
on this podcast, I will chronicle the journey from the 12 all the way into <laughs> Canny X-Men and show you the long-term storytelling that took place that got us from point A to point B. And it's a beautiful story. It's a oh, beautiful what a journey. It is a journey. Uh, it is not unlike the Odyssey in that two Cyclopses are focused on at different points and one man goes from one end of the earth to the other to try and just get home and sleep in his own bed for once. I really appreciate Avengers vs. X-Men. If you cast your mind back to the first X-Men that we did, I marked it as possibly the most important X-Men event of all time. Uh, in a very controversial episode with Matt Draper, uh, who I remember recording that episode. He looked at me like I had four heads and I didn't say it was the best, but it was one of the most important for how it pushed the story forward. Hey, listen, listen. Also, by the way, don't trust Draper. He doesn't even <laughs> like comics. He, he, he doesn't even know who the X-Men are. <laughs> it's like X-Men, mutants, what are those? <laughs> but he's he's not wrong in saying that it's it's not a great event <laughs> um however this did kick off a whole new uh, again a whole new era for the x-men comics where we have radical mutant terrorist cyclops and guy who's just trying to do his best wolverine in a really fun kind of shift of dynamics where cyclops was as wild card as he's ever been and each of them are kind of amassing their own forces of X-Men. Um, this is where we got stories like the Battle of the Atom crossover. This is where we got the death of Wolverine, where he lost his healing factor and subsequently got, you know, uh, Dairy Queen covered in a bath of adamantium. Like yeah, he listeners, if you've ever seen the Kids' Choice Awards, <laughs> you know when somebody gets slimed? <laughs> That uh, that happened to Wolverine. Oh, I that is now forever the way I'm going to view that comic. It's <laughs> six issues of him just getting slimed at the Kids' Choice Awards. <laughs> that is how I'm going to pitch Death of Wolverine to people now. It's like, it's like Wolverine goes to the Kids' Choice Awards. That's all you need to know. That's Kids' Death Choice Awards have never been deadlier. <laughs> Uh, this is also where we got such critically acclaimed stories like the Black Vortex and Axis. Everyone's favorite Axis event happened during this time. Um, Y'all remember the White Skull? I do. As an Iron Man fan, <laughs> uh, I am not a fan of Axis. What? Not a fan... What? But this is the best Iron Man run. This is the best era of Iron Man comics. He cures blindness, to... Doug. He cures blindness. You're not wrong. I like I like the story. I just I I don't like what it does for that character. I'm sorry. No, I I'm get sorry, it. Tom Taylor. Superior Iron Man is is a story. It certainly is. Yeah. Um, but we also, I mean, during this time, right, we get two books that 
I think a lot of people I tend to look back on fondly, not everyone else does. Um, the Uncanny X-Men run by Bendis and Bacalo is top tier. This is Cyclops and his mutant revolutionaries just fighting for their piece of the pie. And then we also get possibly the most controversial X-Men choice of the decade. All new X-Men. The time-displaced OG5, which gives us Teen Cyclops. My favorite character to follow in the 2010s was Cyclops. Which one? Both of them. <laughs> it also brings back the uh, the old chestnut of Hank Pym making terrible decisions. Terrible decisions. This is also where we get Sasquatch Hank. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I really dig this design for Hank. Well, Sasquatch Hank is fun. It's definitely cleaner. It's more streamlined. Mm-hmm. I I always like Lion Beast. I thought that yeah. was really cool, but I I do like the look of this one. And seeing seeing him be like, I know how to fix all of our problems. Let's go get. Let's go put our our teenager selves into a DeLorean and bring them to the future. I can't possibly see anything going wrong from this. It's just it's it's Chef's kiss. Problematic fave Hank McCoy, um, who continues to make the wrong decision for the wrong reasons. You thought I was going to say the wrong decision for the right reasons. Incorrect. Hank McCoy consistently makes the wrong decision always. And it's never for a good reason. It does not get better. (laughs) Uh, We did get a fun, like I mentioned, uh, Black Vortex crossover with Guardians, which I believe Bendis was also helming at the time. Um, This also gave us the... Uh, star-crossed romance of Peter Quill and Kitty Pride, which I actually really enjoyed. It's unfortunate how that went, but <laughs> I I dig a lot of what happens in this. The all new the bringing up the OG five and putting them in today was a bold choice by Bendis, um, and didn't always pay off. Let's just be clear. But it was something that shook up the status quo of the X-Men, which every good era, I think, does. Um, Specific creators in this era, obviously Bendis. Jason Aaron is also at the height of his powers here with Wolverine and the X-Men and also just putting Wolverine through his paces at this time. Uh, Rick Remender, Charles Sewell became a big voice in the X office during this time. Uh, Chris Bacalo continued to absolutely crush everything he was given. Uh, Nick Bradshaw really jumped up for me as an X right or an X artist. And then we got seminal art from Steve McNiven and Stuart Eminem. Really great art in this era. Uh, I want to give an honorable shout out too, because I don't know if it's in this era or the previous. I think it's it's a little bit in between, but uh, this is, I want to say, some of the first uh, of Cy Spurrier's work on yes. the X line. Yes, you're right. Uh, shout out, like if you're looking uh, for stuff that's a little bit off the beaten path, X Club is super fun. Yeah. It's, it's like utopia's mad science department with (laughs) one of my favorite lesser knowns uh which is dr nemesis yes one of the coolest x characters i've ever come across i love that guy yeah it's 
that whole and and obviously we didn't you know mention every single X book that was yeah. coming out at the time because there were so many, but there were some real gems in there. And again, you know, it was we were able to figure out the full spectrum of stories that you could tell with these characters and with this corner of the Marvel universe. Obviously it all came crashing down during secret wars when everything died, but then everything was reborn anew and it was so good for everyone involved. This kicks off what I call the lost era which took place from 2015 to 2018 and was a fun time for everyone. Especially the X-Men. Especially. Oh, they were having a wonderful time. (laughs) Uh, Things kicked off with all new X-Men number one, restarting the book, uh, but keeping the OG five. This is when they got their sick new uh, redesigns by Joe McKelvey that I freaking love. That Cyclops costume is quite possibly my favorite Cyclops costume of all time. McKelvey. Just Mm. incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Uh, It did end ultimately with Uncanny X-Men 22, but we will get to that in just a second. Because we have to talk about Death of X. We got to talk about this inhuman problem. Because at this point, Marvel was like, all right, X-Men, we're done with you. We're done trying to play ball. We're done trying to, you know, we're done trying to make you important. Your movies are obviously aren't coming to us anytime soon. Wink, nudge. So we are going to replace you with the Inhumans, which are basically the same thing, Marvel Editorial said, as well as Disney said. They're like the same thing, right? Mutants and Inhumans? Yeah, we could just one-to-one replace them. It's great. Which brings us to the Terrigen Mist, uh, the Terrigen Cloud that was unleashed upon the world by Black Bolt during Infinity, started uh, awakening a lot of Inhumans' abilities while also brutally becoming a bioweapon for any mutant that breathed in its toxic fumes. This was a period of time where we got stories like Death of X, which... Gave us great art, but also gave us the death of Cyclops due to the uh, the Terrigen Mist. We got Inhumans versus X-Men. And I would love to hear from you, listener. Email me, geeksplained at gmail.com. Don't look it up. Email me and tell me your favorite part of Inhumans versus X-Men. Your favorite scene that happened. I bet you can't. Without looking it up, I bet you can't. Because I don't remember a single thing that happened in that event. Oh, God. Doug's got something. I got a spicy take here. Oh, no. Uh, You posited Avengers versus X-Men as one of the most important X-Men events of the last decade. No, don't do this. I've got an Uno reverse card here with your name on it. No! Because... Hear me out on this. (laughs) You have the in floor. Humans versus, in Humans versus X-Men was headed up by a little-known writer who, at this point in time, had been kind of making waves on his run with Fantastic Four. And that man is Jonathan Hickman. You now, cannot retroactively do this. Listen, listen, listen. 
<laughs> Let me cook here. All right, he's cooking. Hickman is a guy who like is always building. He's always commenting on stories, pre-existing stories, his own stories. And while I'd argue in Humans versus X-Men, uh, did not land. This goes back to my idea. I don't think there are any bad comics. <laughs> I don't think there are any bad ideas. Because what this ended up kicking off, I'd argue changed X-Men forever. This is basically Hickman kind of returning to the, I guess, the larger tone of stuff like Decimation. Mm. Him returning to the idea that mutants are pushed so far to the brink that they have to do something really crazy, not just to get their place back, but to thrive in this world. And well, again, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think anybody <laughs> remembers anything about this event. What I, what sticks with me is the place that the X-Men were in once the dust settled. Mm -hmm. They, I'd argue they were kind of left lower than they were post M day. So the question is, what do they do and where do they go? And with that, the entire world is open. You make a, you make a compelling point, Doug. You make a compelling point. There are, and there certainly are some really good stories that come out of this era. Um, I believe that, I mean, we did get a bit of crossover with Civil War II, which is another mm -hmm. just wonderful story that everyone loves. You know um, what? Actually, I changed my mind. There are bad comics. <laughs> <laughs> Forget everything I just said. <laughs> um, but this kind of, as Doug Wretched, gave way to the Resurrection Initiative with an X. Mm -hmm. Um, this gave us the Phoenix Resurrection, the Return of Jean Grey miniseries. This gave us the Return of Wolverine miniseries. This also gave us the revival of Cyclops in this as well. So our big three all died and came back during this era. Um, we got the uh, X-Men Disassembled crossover, which I thought was actually handled really well. Uh, the Extermination with a big X and little E crossover. Uh, the wonderfully critically acclaimed Age of X-Man, which everyone loved. Um, but we did get a really, I mean, a really nice story, the Till Death Do Us Part in X-Men Gold, where the uh, the upcoming nuptials of Kitty Pride and Colossus hasn't given me any stress at all revisiting that. Uh, it's It's kind of wonderful to see the books that do come out of this era, though. So we get coming out of secret wars old man logan old man logan is hella underrated a uh, really really great story that i enjoy uh we got not one not two but three x-men titles color-coded x-men blue which continued on the all-new x-men the og5 alongside other characters including my boy jimmy hudson where is he where is he where is jimmy hudson where has he been uh, we got X-Men Gold, which is more of a traditional X-Men book led by Kitty Pride. 
leading the X-Men out of the mansion, which had been relocated to Central Park, which is still hilarious to me. Uh, but we also got two books that I absolutely adore from this era, X-Men Red and All-New Wolverine, both penned by Tom Taylor himself, the man, the myth, the legend, one of my favorite writers in comics. Um, X-Men Red being this really cool. Once uh, Jean Grey came back, she assembled her own X-Men team and said, I answer to no one and decided to do what she want when she wanted in, for my money, her best costume. You can all fight me on this. You will lose because the book is called X-Men Red and she has red in her costume. So you can all take a flying leap. Uh, but we also did get all new Wolverine due to the death of Wolverine in the previous era, which brought Laura Kinney front and center and made her Wolverine, the definitive Wolverine. And she has been Wolverine ever since she is still Wolverine. Um, creators that are worth that definitely are worth a mention here. Obviously Tom Taylor, I mentioned Matthew Rosenberg also kind of came to prominence here following the, uh revival of cyclops uh we got brian michael bendis kind of finishing out his time uh as he made his way over to dc uh we also got uh ed brisson charles sewell mark guggenheim with great great stuff by cullen bunn kelly thompson this is the first time that she got into the x uh x office uh great art by david lopez aaron cuter rgn siaf Jorge Molina, one of my favorite artists, as well as Mahmoud Azrar and De- Declan Shalvi. Just really great stuff. Uh, this is also where we get both Old Man Logan as well as Dead Man Logan. And I love those books. Uh, how do you how do you feel about this? What do you think? I I know you you will go to bat for Inhumans versus X-Men now that that's been established. I'm gonna <laughs> wait for the uh, the inevitable video. On it on your YouTube channel. You you (laughs) until you make listeners, I'm making a personal challenge. Doug needs to make an Inhumans versus X-Men video before 2023 ends. Oh no. And he can only do it with your help. So I need you to subscribe to his channel. I need you to go follow him on all of the socials. And I need you to do the Patreon. Because we can monetarily buy an Inhumans versus X-Men video. It's possible we can do it. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> but yeah, what do you what do you what do you think about the other stories that went on during this time? Oh gosh. I mean, I, I hit a lot of the same points as you. The big standouts for me were obviously all new Wolverine. I love um that and X-Men Red side by side, just because I'm a huge fan of, uh, alongside Laura, Gabby Kinney, one of my yes. favorite editions. Also love, um, I believe it was um, the Rogan Gambit miniseries, Mr. and Mrs. X, yeah. which was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Uh, but the standout for me, and what really made uh, one of my favorites happen is... Um, Going back to Cy Spurrier, uh, X-Men Legacy, which is That's a miniseries right, yeah. that focuses all on Legion, kind of in the wake of Professor X's death and like what his place is in this world. Uh, Legion is a fascinating character, 
uh, especially if you go back to him decade after decade. Uh, I think he's got a lot of interesting stories to tell, and I really like any story that uh, makes him front and center. Yeah, and I, and I mean, he sure does love that Legion character. He just he's he's had a grip on him ever since, but. It's it's true. This era is also kind of where we started to see the wane of the X-Men again. This is a yeah. time where the X-Men were, again, like we said, not doing too well. And fans of the X-Men and people who were reading those X-Men comics, they were not having a great time. Like, it's basically, this is what you're going to get. And, you know, that's all you're getting. And there was a listfulness when it came to the the viewpoint on the X office and the X line. And I remember, you know, for me, um, I, I started to really drop off when it came to my interest in the X line during this period, um, especially as we started to see their popularity. I mean, maybe at its lowest point, maybe at the period where people were just giving up on the idea um, and then, then we get to the current era. And as we are counting this, and as we are heading into this, I now realize I have grossly miscounted the eras. Because this is era number nine, <laughs> and it's the current era. I don't know where I got three extra eras from. <laughs> but I'm not going back to edit all the times I said 12 eras. Uh, you can just divide this into several eras yourself. This is the Kirkoan era. You could just say we time displaced a couple of those we eras. <laughs> we wiped them out. We had, yeah. during the recording of this podcast, Doug and I both had our own personal Days of Future Past quests that happened. I edited them, them out because they took a while, and I didn't want you to have to sit here for 45 days. But... There are now, there are now currently, I, I, uh, I went back to Sinister and I, I asked him to reset a couple of his Moiras. Um, we are currently in the Krakoan era, which is the era that kicked off in 2019 and is going today. We are now mm -hmm. four years into the Krakoan era and it kicked off with Hoxpox, that seminal mini series, uh, and ended, who knows? Who knows when this will end? I hope it goes on forever, even though it's not built to go on that long. <laughs> Let's be honest. Nothing is, nothing goes forever. Um, but the stories here, this was kind of the Renaissance. The low point of the Lost Era was revitalized by Marvel basically saying, we're canceling everything. We're canceling everything. We're giving you a miniseries called Hoxpox. Jonathan Hickman's doing it. We'll see what happens. Uh, important distinction, by the way. It was not Marvel who canceled the line, but Hickman. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to say that because I think you're absolutely right, kind of going back to what you were saying before. Um, I'm not saying that there were... Uh, no good stories during what's called the lost era, but there was definitely a lot of stagnation and people weren't sure of 
what direction they wanted to take it. Right. It's clear that Marvel needed, uh, I guess, uh, I don't want to use this term, but I'm going to say another Claremont, somebody mm. who can completely revitalize, or I guess another Morrison, depending on how you look at it. Somebody who just has a completely different perspective and is willing to bring that to X-Men and make them into something entirely new. Yeah. And uh, with that, we get Hickman and we get Hawksbox. So I'm sorry I cut you off there. No, no, no. It is it is an important distinction because like you said, Hickman kind of taking control of the line led to its success and where we are currently with it, which again is a renaissance of sorts with the X-Men line. They haven't been this popular in Lord knows how long, but we got stories like Ten of Swords, which is still one of the most ridiculous stories I've ever read, and I love it to death. Um, this is where we got the two-parter Hellfire Gala and Trial of Magneto events, um, leading up, of course, to Inferno, uh, Hickman's swan song for the X-Men for now. Uh, we also got, this is during the period where we got Judgment Day as the line kind of turned from a Hickman-led vision to an ex office led vision a group project as it were uh we got stories like the 10 lives and deaths of wolverine which i'm currently reading through for the first time and it is a lot uh (laughs) yeah and we are now currently in the sins of sinister event which is also a lot Um, after canceling all of the X-Men books, new books sprung up in their places. Obviously, the Hickman and Linnell Francis Yu-led X-Men series that initially focused on the Summers family, and I love it so much. Uh, we got Hellions, which I did come to later, but absolutely fell in love with. Marauders, this is where we got Young Hot Cable, not, not X-Man, but the other Young Hot Cable. Uh, This is where we got, later on, Immortal X-Men, X-Men Red, Excalibur, slash Knights of X, slash Captain Britain, because it's all one big story, as well as the return of S.W.O.R.D. Um, Some of the names, definitely not all the names that I wanted to shout out. Obviously Hickman, uh, but also Kieran Gillen returning from his, his, uh, his exile from the X offices. Uh, after his short time with them earlier on in uh, in his career, Al Ewing, who continues to win at everything he touches. Uh, Jerry Duggan, who I think personally has been crushing the main X-Men book for a while now. Uh, Steve Orlando, who is also doing wonderful work and just wrapped up his Marauders epic. Uh, Teeny Howard, who is just, I mean, this is the best. This is the best. Uh, Zeb Wells. Vita Ayala, Leah Williams, Lanil Francis Yu, Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, Russell Dodderman. Russell Dodderman. You know how much I love me some Russell Dodderman. Go back and listen to the Days of Thunder, which Doug had a 90% hand in how much visibility we got to that because of his incredible oh, I, teasers. I disagree. I only elevated the greatness that was there. Oh, you stop. Uh, but we also got great art from Valerio Shiti, Phil Noto, Rod Race, Mike Del Mundo, and of course, Stefano Caselli, who is currently absolutely crushing it on X-Men Red. Um, what are your favorite books from the from the Krakoan age? 
that is so tough to say because i i've spent it's so weird to to say i've spent the last maybe two to three years just making videos on that and i feel like through that i've come to love almost every book uh in a different way mm. but um I mean, personal favorites, obviously, I think Hoxpox is right up at the top of the list. For sure. Followed closely by Inferno. Um, and then beyond that, uh, there are so many. <laughs> there, like, even, even in the last uh, two to three years, there are so many books. And that's kind of um, the strength of this era, that everybody's got a story to tell. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do like uh, OG Marauders a lot. Same. Uh, back when Jerry Duggan was heading that up, I do like what Steve Orlando's done with that since. Um, let me think here. Well, while you're thinking, so I, I, while, while you're thinking, I will give the the context because after the uh, after the X-Men kind of fell apart in that lost era, we established a whole, a brand new soft reboot for the X-Men, basically putting them on the island of Krakoa, making them a mutant nation. Does that sound familiar? It should. It should make you nervous. Uh, but they became like a global superpower. And it wasn't for a while that we even had a strictly X-Men team. And now we've got the X-Men, we've got the X-Men vote, the Hellfire Gala. They feel like a force again. They feel like a phenomenon again. This is probably the most popular they've been since maybe Morrison's X-Men. I I would agree. I mean, I it's so funny because I think Hickman is very directly inspired by Morrison. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see like a lot of this is just a conversation with new X Men. Yeah, um, I think obviously you have uh, upping the ante from like global subculture to kind of kind of soft spoilers here, but galactic superpower. Yes. Which, by the way, my top five are. Oh, okay. Let's do this. Hawkspox, uh, Inferno, Planet Size X Men. Nice. Love that. New Mutants, Hellions, and Way of X slash Legion of X. Nice. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a fascinating era because, I mean, like, the the big thread that you can kind of trace across this is the X-Men have always been fighting for their future, you know? you. The big question is, can they ever get past what we see in days of future past, mm -hmm. which is this big post-apocalyptic wasteland that they all find themselves in. And Hawkspox kind of kicked off the idea that they, they not only can move beyond that, they can make something entirely new, entirely prosperous for themselves. But I mean, something that <laughs> Hickman loves revisiting is he always likes to say, is this a perfect society though? He always like, <laughs> he always twists the knife a little bit. And uh, with that through Inferno, we kind of got to see the dark underbelly that's forming while this, I, I'm going to say empire starts yeah. to build itself up. And uh, that's been one of the coolest 
uh, line-wide arcs I've ever experienced. He also loves putting people in black bodysuits and big-ass helmets. He does. He, lo- he, he, he loves doing that for whatever reason. Hickman saw Beyond the Black Rainbow once and just loved it. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a fucking deep cut. I know. And I, I appreciate that about that you. Means. I appreciate that about you. Shout out to Brian McDermott, the one person to get that show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I mean, speaking of Brian, I mean, his the maker's helmet does look like a small metal blimp so it does it's all connected (laughs) it's all connected but yeah it's it's fascinating to look at where the x-men have been as opposed to where they are now right there's so much that has changed even just from lost era to krakoan era with how mutants are viewed they're viewed as a phenomenon as they always have been but now it's like oh wait a second they can exist without us it's it's that classic like go make comics for yourselves and it's like okay we're making comics for ourselves it's like stop making comics for yourselves it's like putting them up against like you know organizations like orcus like the the other other hellfire club that is made of children and all of the forces that are summarily trying to bring them down now that they have their own piece of the pie. It's a fascinating conversation. And again, allows the discussion to be made about what the X-Men at their core have always been. And that's representation for underrepresented and um, oppressed people. And, having them be like, okay, now we're going to be within our power and we're going to claim our space. We're going to go terraform a planet for God's sake. Like you said, they are building their empire and that, you know, is kind of a scary idea. I think of anything building an empire, but I mean, if anybody deserves, if anybody's earned it, I think they have at this point. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny because you you can see two kind of camps of thought around this era, which is, oh, the X-Men are like in a dystopian now. <laughs> and then um, to, like, I'm, I'm going to quote something that isn't related to this at all. Yeah. But uh, if anybody loves Halt and Catch Fire, there's a quote that is, well, of course, they're afraid of you because you're the future. And that's mm. that to me sums up this this whole idea perfectly. Yeah. It's not that like. It's not that Orcus is even afraid of mutants in terms of like a mass destruction thing. It's just the idea that somebody out there can succeed without their help. Right. It's the fact that they're not dependent. And beyond that, they are making their own world. They aren't just like prosperous, but they are redefining everything. Um, like the, I, the ongoing commentary is that like suddenly every book is x-men adjacent now and i think that goes to show not just how successful this new direction has been but like how much demand has always been there for stories like this people obviously want uh to see the x-men because i think like you said a lot of people see themselves in stories like this so 
to to get an era, not just like a, a year or a chapter, but an ongoing saga that kind of charts the the ongoing rise of this uh I'm gonna like transformative nation state. I think it's it's very hard to put into words what this means to people. Well, and you see now like people are having discussions on like the I I I can absolutely remember vividly, you know, five years ago when people when someone asked me like, oh, like, what are the X-Men doing? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, not a lot. But now, like, you look at the X line and you look at the books that have both come and gone, and there's literally an X book for everybody. And you made an excellent point. Like everybody's kind of like, regardless of how connected you are to them, you know, as a character, every book in Marvel is now X-Men adjacent because mm -hmm. a lot of those books are now just reacting to what happened there. There, there is not a single Marvel comic that goes by that someone doesn't go. And the mutants over on Krakoa are doing this. So we got to do this, obviously. And, once again, putting them on that world stage and making them just as popular as literally anybody else, if not more so. If you're a comic book reader, there is probably an X book that you're reading. It doesn't mean, you know, necessarily that you're reading all of them, but there is distinctly an X book for every kind of geek. And. Oh. Ah! Clap, 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 clap. Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Put on the sunglasses. Um, <laughs> but I, I I genuinely think this might be one of, if not the most prosperous eras for X-Men comics, both monetarily and narratively. Because you, we mentioned it already. Blue and gold was hella, it was incredibly profitable for Marvel. But it wasn't always good stories that were doing it and conversely i mean you you saw how how good the stories were during the decimation era but they weren't making any money because that's just how it was and now we're at this beautiful kind of precipice where you get to see the x-men both critically and commercially acclaimed and everybody who is reading comics is like, I can't wait to see what the X-Men are doing next. I can't wait to see. We got two X-Men events back to back with Judgment Day and Dark Web. Like how often has that happened? Not specifically how many events are back to back because that happens all the time now. But like specifically X-Men involved events. It has been a while since we've seen something like this. Oh and yeah. I, for, for my money, I can't foresee where or when this era would end and i'm kind of afraid of the idea of this ending because i don't know where they would go from here but it's it's anyway can't wait for fall of x <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to the potential of of this year because as we are discussing this and as we're as we're recording this right now we're recording this a little a little bit in advance um fall of x is on its way We've had Destiny of X. We know that shit is going to be coming to Krakoa. Um, but no one is saying what Fall of X means. 
no mm. one is saying what fall of x represents and no one is saying wait what's gonna happen in my x-men comics and that's both terrifying and exciting at the same time because if nothing else inferno as an example was a terrible story about people dying and the dream dying and friendships dying but it's a beautiful fucking story so well done and so well told that you can't you can do nothing but marvel about how tragic it is that terrible things are happening to maybe terrible people and if that's like a tease or you know an example to go by fall of x is going to be really hard for a lot of people myself included it's i mean it's funny because i can see them going either way on this i mean like bringing it back to morrison because every every road leads back to morrison now always does uh they they did kind of cap off their big transformative run by kind of going back to basics Mm -hmm. And while I do think that, uh, I mean, at some point the Krakoan era might end, I don't think we're going to lose everything we gained from that. Hmm. Something that has become uh, like very, very popular and I think has driven a lot of this era of storytelling is the idea of connection as the ultimate mutant superpower. Hmm. I mean, it's... It's something that started with Hoxpox and Hickman, the idea that um, mutants can only succeed whenever they work together. That's since expanded into its own actual lore piece. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Al Ewing and Sword for defining what yes. uh, is called the mutant circuit. And then beyond that, just using that as an engine to say the mutants can change society for the better through this superpower i think the reason why these hit so hard for me is because not only like not only does this narratively give us a way to change the world but it also kind of highlights the importance of bringing in so many different voices so many different perspectives uh hickman gets a lot of credit for kickstarting this era but the reason why it's still going is because of people like Vita Ayala, people like Rod Rice, like Leah Williams, like Teeny Howard, um, Cy Spurrier, Al Ewing, Kieran Gillen, all of these people bringing their own experiences, their own vision of what the mutant metaphor can be. I think that's changed X-Men forever, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. Beautifully put. God damn, Doug. Beautifully put. Um, but you hit on something that I think definitely should be uh, should be examined. The Krokoan age, and it's I very specifically didn't name this the Hickman era because this is the Krokoan era, and we've seen in the past when the vision of the main creator driving that era leaves a new era starts when claremont left those books 
his version of those characters kind of left with him. And then we got everything we got in the blue and gold era. When Morrison left those books, everything that they had established was kind of put to the side as the reload and everything came after that. When Hickman, who kicked this off, left the books, arguably, I think it, a, a definite argument is to be made, they got better. And I think the thing that's beautiful and important about this is that Hickman, Hickman almost in a way served the same role that Len Wein and Dave Cockrum did with giant sized X-Men number one. No one looks at giant sized or that Claremont era and thinks about uh, Wien and Cockrum, but they should because they established everything that Claremont would utilize to then build out his epic when it came to his run on X-Men. Hickman served that same purpose where Hickman said, I am going to wipe the board clean, set the table in my image. And then when he left, we didn't get a changeover. We didn't get a reset. We didn't get a, okay, now we're going to start a new run. We're going to start a new era. It continued. It endured. And the Krakoan age continues to be strong, continues to put out incredible stories with amazing characters and wonderful creators. And it's, it's fascinating that we don't have a precedent for this. And it's exciting in that way that we don't have this we don't have this example to go by the closest thing again is that giant-sized x-men but that was a one-shot hickman spent two years on almost three building this building the foundations of an empire and now he gets to see it blossom without him as he moves on to deal with other things in the marvel universe as we're recording this they just recently announced gods as an acronym but it's it's really cool and it's really exciting it makes me excited to see where the x books go from here yeah i mean not to not to make this about hickman but something <laughs> that uh something that really struck me while i was researching for obviously the the inferno era was realizing just how many of the conversations were about how mutual the office was yeah. like even as he was building up his own little corner hickman kind of um was fostering like a larger sense of collaboration with the office mm -hmm. and i i think that's that's the key to why this works and that's why all of these stories are about how collaboration and unity are the driving factor because it's i mean it's ultimately what kept these books going we we didn't even talk about how the krakoan era kicked off right as the the global pandemic started yeah oh man and, they, and like even in spite of that they churned out all these books mm -hmm. they got even bigger and I think um, I think that's just a testament to what all of these creators made, and the idea that um, you know, like a, a team that works really well can. I mean, there, there's nothing that can stop them. Yeah, absolutely agree. So that, dear listener, is sixty years and nine, maybe twelve eras of X Men comics. Um, 
if you want to find the missing three, you'll just have to wait another 60 years. They're, they're littered throughout the time. Go, go ask Jonathan Hickman. You, if, if you want to know, if you ever run into Jonathan Hickman, ask him, what are the missing three eras of X-Men? <laughs> and I guarantee he'll have an answer for you. But to, to recap the eras, we've, we've got at least the ones that we've got. First class, giant-sized, blue and gold, millennium, reload, decimation, now lost in Krakoan. 60 years is a long time. And as we've seen, there are so many stories and so many visions for the X-Men that can be, uh, can tell story that you can tell stories with. And it has been a genuine pleasure to dive back into them and to discuss them with you, Doug. It is always wonderful to have you on the show thank you for coming to do this uh if our listeners want to continue to keep up with you and continue to keep up with the godfather of x-may uh where where can they find you oh that's you're too good to me uh you can find me on twitter at every kind of geek and on youtube at for every kind of geek and I say it every time he comes on the show, and sometimes even when he's not on the show. But Doug's doing the Lord's work. He is he's putting out some of the most inventive and visually exciting videos in Comic Tube. And if you even have a passing excitement for comics or anything adjacent, you're going to want to sub to his channel. You're going to want to watch his videos. You're going to want to bug him. And you're going to want to subscribe to his Patreon so that you can get that Inhumans versus X-Men video. We are going to make this happen. I've already got a Patreon goal for Chuck Austin's X-Men. So if we (laughs) add Inhumans versus X-Men, we're just going to round this out. You're just, you're just heaping more enjoyment for me on my plate. We're going to make it happen. We're going to make it happen. Mark my words. We are going to get this to happen for sure. But again, Doug, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You are welcome back anytime, whether we're talking mutants or not. And hopefully as the years go by, we will see many more prosperous eras for the X-Men to come. My name is Barry Allen and I am the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder. Then an accident made me the impossible. To the outside world, I'm an ordinary forensic scientist. But secretly, I use my speed to fight crime and find others like me. And one day, I'll find who killed my mother and get justice for my father. I am the Flash. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now I am reviewing episode number 12, the penultimate episode of the final season of The Flash, entitled A New World Chapter 3. This is a lot of complicated feelings. Um... As I am recording this and as you are listening to this, um, the season and series finale drops this week. Uh, I'll be covering that in next week's episode since the weekly reviews are from 
basically every week after. Uh, so I'm a week late, but it allows me to kind of prolong my thoughts and my feelings. And this uh, this whole season has been very complicated for me because it feels like the first, oh, let's say the first two-thirds of this season was more about kind of wrapping up loose threads for the Arrowverse rather than loose threads for the show. And it feels like this A New World crossover, this A New World finale, which, as they've stated, the showrunners have, is a four-part finale. This should have been the season, right? This should have been... Each part of this should have been three episodes to give everything time to breathe, to let us really feel that mystery surrounding Eddie Thawne and Malcolm Gilmore and all of that stuff eventually leading to the reveal of Eddie. And I just feel like we're kind of, we're, we're no pun intended, racing to the finish to get everything done and wrapped with a bow so we can get to this finale. Um, that being said, I did like what I saw in this episode. This episode was uh, definitely featured a lot more Barry, <laughs> which has been a problem this season. But I I really liked what we got to see here, um, continuing on with the revelation from uh, last episode that Malcolm Gilmore is not, in fact, a clone or, as I was kind of hoping, the long-lost twin of... Um, of Eddie Thawne, but is in fact Eddie Thawne himself, having, I guess, survived and yet not survived. As far as we know, he shot himself in the uh, finale of season one, got sucked into the singularity, and then popped back up in 2049 and was resurrected by the negative speed force. Now, it is unclear as I'm recording this whether or not this has been a long-standing thing whether the negative speed force has been designing this for Eddie or whether this was something that the negative speed force just did after the conclusion of last season when it lost its last avatar, that being Eobard Thawne. But overall, I, again, I feel like we should have gotten more time with this. And it's also now this weird thing where Eddie maybe has singularity powers, like his vibe, um, which again, makes it, I think all the more confusing why Vibe and Carlos Valdez didn't come back for this final season. I mean, he was part of the heart and soul of that show. And so his absence is felt. Now, fingers crossed that he might show up in the finale, but I don't think he will. But again, we'll just have to see. Um, alongside that, we got to see uh, Barry, again, kind of hopscotching throughout time. Uh, I was mistaken, I guess, last week. I thought that Iris had had the baby, and then Barry was pulled back, but apparently no. Iris is currently in labor. Um, she is waiting for, you know, Barry to get back. They're in the hospital, and that kind of presented a problem in that Eddie's whole thing is being about, I got to find Iris. Iris. Iris is my true love. Barry stole my life from me. But they worked around that. And this is, I don't want to say like clever writing as much as it is um, convenient writing, I guess, that Eddie did pop up in 2049 because then he gets to talk to the Iris 
at that point. And I'm glad that we're touching more on the 2049 period with Team Flash, um, Cecile, who I believe is now Virtue. I think is her superhero name now is part of the team. She's got a super suit. It looks cool. Looks kind of dreamer-esque, which I think is odd, but her and Allegra are part of the team. Allegra still doesn't have a super suit either, though she is actively on the team. It's weird, Uh, but they're part of the team. And Nora is kind of leading team flash. It seems like Barry in 2049, who is around, I guess, because they changed the timeline. Barry is around, but he's probably off with the Justice League in space. They reference him going off into space and doing a mission. So Nora is kind of leading. It's a it's a very Batman and Robin slash Batman Incorporated situation where Barry is like the Flash, seems to be the Flash of the world, while Nora is the Flash of Central City. But it's cool seeing Excess. I've always really enjoyed uh, her as a character and enjoyed Nora as a uh, as a character on the show. But we do see older um, older Iris talking to Eddie. Eddie's like, oh my god, like, Barry stole my life from me, and I, like, really, you know, I've never got, you know, I can't get over this. You should have been my wife. Nora should have been my daughter. And during all this, the uh, the negative speed force through the cobalt gem is trying to get to him. Though, again, they discuss in this episode, because Barry gets flung into the future and he's talking to Eddie and everything, that the negative speed force created this identity and created this quote-unquote like false reality uh, using tachyons to change things around Eddie to make this life happen for him. You're telling me the negative speed force never got to him at any point before this? I It's weird, but I did like that we got... To as weird as it was, Eddie goes to the Flash Museum. Now, we had seen the exterior of the Flash Museum dozens of times across the series, but we got to see the inside, and I'm not going to lie, kind of disappointing. I mean, I know I am probably looking at this through an unfair lens because the Flash Museum and the comics and other pieces of media and TV and all that stuff is obviously uh, granted a little bit more leeway when it comes to how creative they can be in that, whereas the CW Flash show has to, you know, make this set within its budget. And they basically repurpose the the training room slash experiment room slash whatever utility room this needs to be, depending on the episode and the scene, into the Flash Museum. But it did feel a little cramped. It's like you you hearing about, oh man, we're going to go to Universal Studios and this is going to be great. And then it's just one room. And it's, I don't know. Either way. It was cool seeing all the memorabilia, seeing all the suits and all the like the footage and everything, Eddie finding out about his history. And it was a cool thing to have Eddie realize, hey, he made the heroic sacrifice in the season finale of season one, shooting himself to make sure that Thawne was never born, erasing him from the timeline, and nothing came of it. He sacrificed himself for absolutely nothing because Thawne kept coming back. It's a cool consequence of the idea that Thawne is never truly gone from Barry's life. He is constantly trying to ruin his life, and in that, Eddie's sacrifice meant absolutely nothing. Everyone tells him, like, hey, no, that's not true. You saved Barry. You saved everybody. But everyone, like, looking at it from a third perspective, okay, Eddie sacrificed himself. Great. Cool. 
This caused a singularity, whether or not Eddie's powers are singularity related or whether this was like a timeline fissure thing, caused a singularity that ate up half the city and caused irreparable damage, probably killed at least a few people. And then even after all that, after Flash uh, and Firestorm, it killed Firestorm as well, Thawne kept coming back. There was no grand gesture. There was no grand, you know, reward for Eddie making that sacrifice play. And if I was Eddie, I too would be kind of pissed. Because, again, from an objective perspective, Barry lets Eddie die and then goes and steals his fiance and builds a life with her. So I think, you know, that obviously does a major disservice to Candace Patton and to Iris West's, you know, autonomy as a person. She's free to love and be with whoever she wants to be. But from that perspective, Eddie is kind of in the right here. At least from that warped perspective of only knowing, you know, his side of the story. And it's really fun to see, you know, Rick Cosnett play that. He's been phenomenal in all of the episodes he's featured in. And I'm really excited because he is going to be turning, by the end of this episode, he's turning into Cobalt Blue. We have been talking about it since the very first episode of this season, of this show, that either he is secretly... Eobard Thawne, or that he is eventually going to be Cobalt Blue. And I'm glad that we got there. We finally got there. The major fan cast rumor that we had all had when it was announced that Rid Cosnet would be playing Eddie Thawne when the show was announced has finally come true, and it's good to see that coming. I don't think this was intended to be this way, but it's very cool to see that we got to have that full circle moment. Um... We got to see also in this future time the end game for Allegra and Chester, them being happy, them have still having that spark after all those years of marriage. They get married, which is great. And then at the end of the episode, Eddie decides, I am going to ruin the Flash's life and get back the life that he stole from me, taking the cobalt blue uh, crystal, and he is going to become cobalt blue. Now, this sets up a large finale with a lot of implications, right? Um, Barry, having no, having now had all this knowledge, he got to have a re- also a really touching scene with future Iris. And again, I've said it before, I will say it again, regardless of the dips in quality, the writing, the VFX throughout the show, the strongest piece of this show has always been Candace Patton, and Grant Gustin as Iris West and Barry Allen. Their chemistry has been electric from the first episode of this show and has never, ever wore out its welcome. And it's so nice to see them getting to have one last moment before we run into this, you know, I'm sure full throttle roller coaster, no minute to breathe finale that we're going to be getting this week. And even though it is a future Iris with a past Barry Allen, it's just nice that they still have that that chemistry. And so Barry runs off into the Speed Force, which the Speed Force Nora is now gone, does not exist, I guess. Um, 
And we are set for a grand finale that is hopefully going to give us everything that we need to wrap up this show, this saga, this character, this odyssey that Barry Allen has been on since the very first episode. So that is my review for this week. Again, really complicated feelings. They released this video on Twitter uh, by Entertainment Weekly of Grant Gustin packing up. Uh, the Flash suit and all his memorabilia. And I am not going to lie, I watched this video the first time and I wept. Because I am a sentimental fellow who cannot control his emotions on some things. I really felt it. I really felt it, the weight of how long Grant Gustin has been on our television screens, how long he's been running as The Flash. Uh, it, it gets me a little teary-eyed even talking about it right now. And I am not... I don't think, currently as I'm recording this, I don't think I'm prepared to let him go this week. So we are going to see how that goes. We are going to see, hopefully, a very satisfying ending to this character and to this show. Uh, we'll be talking all about it next week, so tune in for that. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of May 24th, 2023, and this is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we gotta take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And there were some contenders, let me tell you, but ultimately... I gave it a tie, I know, but it had to be done between The Avengers number one and The Flash number 799. For The Flash, this is the final full issue of Jeremy Adams' run, uh, and I loved it. I loved it from start to finish, from cover to cover. Jeremy Adams has had such a wonderful take on Wally and his family throughout this whole run and I will forever be bitter that we're not getting at least four more years of him writing this book but ultimately it is uh it is a great story a great little conclusion to the two-parter featuring Granny Goodness kidnapping their newborn Wade uh there's also no spoilers but there is a nice little um a nice little back door for more stories to be told in this uh, in this Jeremy Adams era. So I am going to miss it. Uh, the Flash number eight hundred will be his final issue on the uh, on the book, while also sharing it with many other Flash creators. But as a final standalone, I really really dug it. And then the Avengers number one, not just Avengers, the Avengers showcases just why Jed McKay is being given the keys to the kingdom when it comes to Marvel right now. Uh, he's killing it. He's absolutely killing it. Um, having a having an understanding of all of these characters like he does really just makes this book sing. I'm kind of surprised that he didn't find a way to work Doctor Strange onto the roster because we know how much he loves Doctor Strange. He's been helming Doctor Strange stories for a while now to... Uh, Pretty, pretty good effect. But I am really excited about this roster. I really dug this first issue. It felt like a big time call to action and tons of fun with a really intriguing cliffhanger. So overall, both of these books 
with some phenomenal art are books you should absolutely have picked up last week. And if you missed out on them, go back to your shop and go pick them up because they are worth taking a look at. But that's last week's books. This week, we've got eight books, and oops, it's an all-DC Comics edition of the Comics Countdown, because, at least for my list, there aren't really any Marvel books that I'm super into coming out this week. Um, I'm sure I'm missing at least one or two of them. I am not perfect in looking at what books are coming out, but for the purposes of this list, it's going to be all-DC, so... That being said, let's go ahead and dig into this list, kicking things off with Justice Society of America number four, written by Jeff Johns with art by Mikkel Janine and Jerry Ordway. And this book I'm really, I'm really wanting to hold on to because I love Justice Society. I love all of those characters and I like a enduring mystery like this but the release schedule is killing me we're getting like one issue every like four months and it feels like we we should already be and maybe my timeline is skewed but like we should already be at least like eight to ten issues into the story and it's like i feel like with john's books he had this excuse when it was gary frank because gary frank takes a long time rightfully so because Gary Frank's art is incredible, but now he just seems to be associated with delayed books, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I'm going to keep holding on, at least until this first arc is done, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The New Golden Age, Chapter 4, Fates and Fortunes. Helena's journey through time continues. Each new time period gives her one more piece of the puzzle, but is Degaton too far ahead in his quest to eradicate the JSA to be stopped? Is this truly the end of the Justice Society? So yeah, like, it's, I mean, melodramatic as hell, which you would expect Justice Society to be, and I don't know, I'm enjoying it so far, but again, these delays are killing me. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1055. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, Dan Jurgens, and Dorado Quick, with art by Rafa Sandoval, Lee Weeks, and Yasmin Flores Montanez. And, okay, look, listen. It's, for me, I'm just glad. As a Superman fan and a Superman enjoyer and a reader of his comics that there are so many super books right now at this present moment you've got superman you've got action comics you've got adventures of superman john kent you've got uh superboy man of tomorrow we've got the power girl series coming up there is a lot to enjoy about superman Action Comics, I think, so far for me has been the weakest out of them. Um, and that's not to say, like, it's a bad comic, because it's absolutely not. But I think the anthology format of this book is hurting it a little bit. With it having to dedicate its time to three different stories, you don't get a lot of time for each chapter. I think if they had just done one story and a backup then it would be fine. But the fact that they are continuing to have to share one book each month between three different stories, I think is doing a disservice to the to all three stories that are involved. Um, I do think that this is still like 
this is going to be the place. If I want some Keenan Con content, this is where he's or Keenan content. Uh, this <laughs> stupid. Uh, this is the only place that I'm going to find it. But even then, he hasn't been showing up much, right? Uh, it's been very focused in the main story, at least on Cal and Metallo, which is great. I love Metallo as a character. John Corbin's fantastic, and I think that this story is doing a great job with him. However. Again, they kind of marketed this as like the Superman family book, and I don't feel like right now that's what the book is. Hopefully that changes, but uh, for now, let's go ahead and dive into this synopsis. Tech Alive slash Home Again Part 5 slash Engineer of Tomorrow Part 2. Superman's true yeah, Superman's true enemy has been revealed, the cyborg Superman, Hank Henshaw. Everything the superfamily has built stands on a knife's edge, and Superman and Metallo become the unlikeliest of allies as they hunt for Metallo's missing sister. Can they prevent the inevitable devolution of Metallo's mind and body long enough to save his sister from Henshaw's monstrous plans? I did like that they brought Hank Henshaw back. Cyborg Superman, I'm always excited to see. But again, I do think this needs to either go down in number when it comes to uh, the amount of books this is, or we need to get some more spinoff books. Next up, we have Unstoppable Doom Patrol number three. This is written by Dennis Culver with art by Chris Burnham. I have been really enjoying this book. Uh, the Doom Patrol does not get the kind of love that it should, though I feel like books like this and the show are steadily getting us towards that. Um, and I have been absolutely adoring Chris Burnham's work on the book club, which is on break this week, but the last few volumes of the of this past season of the book club where we covered Grant Morrison's Batman run they had a big benefit in having Chris Burnham on art with that Batman Incorporated New 52 book and so anything Chris Burnham right now I am scooping up and also there's another reason that I'm very excited for this issue so let's get into the synopsis the fast and the nebulous come on this is just for me the Green Lanterns are in hot pursuit of the world's strangest superheroes. When a brand new metahuman unwittingly becomes a galactic fugitive, Robot Man and Negative Man embark on a cross-country road trip to save him. Cliff Steele may be the best driver in the DCU, but can he outrun its best GLs, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner? Find out in the story we had to call The Fast and the Nebulous. It's it's Fast and Furious, Doom Patrol, Kyle Rayner, and also Guy Gardner's there, I guess. But like, come on, it's it's a it's an issue made specifically for me, which I'm really excited about. Uh, this run's actually been really good, so if you haven't picked it up or you're wait or you're trade waiting, it's you're gonna have a fun time with it. Next up, we have a brand new number one as part of the We Are Legends line. This is City Boy number one. I have been gushing about the We Are Legends stuff. The Vigil was great. Spirit World was great. And I'm really excited about City Boy. This is written by Greg Pak with art by Minkyu Jung. And I... Let, let's just dig into the synopsis because I don't think I'm going to do... I'm, I think I'm going to do a disservice to the story if I don't give you the synopsis first. 
first seen in Wildstorm 30th Anniversary Special and Lazarus Planet Legends Reborn, there's a new Korean hero named City Boy. Or at least that's the best translation of what the cities call him. City Boy, aka Cameron Kim, is just trying to make a living by using his powers of being able to speak to cities and find lost and hidden goods to pawn. And it's only just enough to get by. And those abilities mean he hears everything, everywhere, all the time. Ah, they almost got you. Including each city's histories and the truths behind them. It's very loud in his head and something he has to live with. As his powers get stronger, the cities start forming animal avatars from scraps in order to physically travel alongside him on his adventures. Of course, Gotham is a rat avatar made of city scraps. But what about Metropolis... Bloodhaven, Amnesty Bay, or even Themyscira. And not all cities are so kind. So if you enjoyed uh, Devil May Cry, a game series where the city kind of warps around you, I think you're going to enjoy something like this. Uh, having the the landscape that our heroes involved in be both the allies, the setting, as well as the enemies is a really inventive way to tell a superhero story and something that we haven't seen before in American comics. So I'm really excited about this. Can't wait to pick this up, and I hope you pick this one up too. Next up, we have Sandman Universe, The Dead Boy Detectives, number six. This is written by Pornsock Pichetshot with art by Jeff Stokely, and I keep telling you... I keep telling you, why are you gagging so she brings it to you every ball? I love this book. Pornstock Pachetshot has been doing incredible work with the Dead Boy Detectives, and Jeff Stokely's art has been next level. This book has been fantastic, and I don't know how many more chapters we get in this. I hope we get lots more, but let's dive into the synopsis and find out where we're at. Thessaly the Witch presents Edwin and Charles with an impossible choice in this series' thrilling conclusion. Well, that answered my question. <laughs> in this series' thrilling conclusion, what would two dead boys be willing to sacrifice to save themselves from the terrifying unknown and the very order of magic as they understand it? So yeah, looks like big, big choices are coming up. I am really, really sad that this story is ending, but hopefully we get more. Uh, you can... You can absolutely tell that uh, Pachet Show hit on something, uh, dipping into Thai horror and involving Edwin and Charles. Um, I need more Dead Boy Detectives, so definitely pick up the rest of the series. Again, if you're trade waiting, you're going to want to pick this up. This series has been fantastic. Next up, we have Tim Drake Robin number nine. This is written by Megan Fitzmartin with art by Nicola Semezja. I know I said that incorrectly, and I apologize. Tim Drake Robin, another book that is coming to an end soon, but... This isn't the end just yet. This is the penultimate issue. Um, I I love this series. Uh, we've had Megan on the podcast, and she was incredible. Wonderful, wonderful writer. So freaking talented. Such a great mind for this character and for this medium. And I am really excited to see what she does next. I hope there's something lined up for her next, because we haven't heard hide nor hair of anything that she's doing next when it comes to comics um she did recently have uh dc and ruby or justice league ruby the animated uh film release so she's doing stuff she's still doing stuff obviously but i i need her to be writing more comics so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis Batwoman's got blood on her hands as a familiar enemy rears their head and creates a rift between her and Robin. Do we really know what we're capable of? 
That's an interesting idea. And we know the last time that they had a big old team up was in Detective Comics Rebirth, where she caused the fracture that ended the Gotham Knights. So I I really hope that they touch on that. I really hope that they evolve that and get us to where their relationship is logically going to know, go next. And it's the return of the Chaos Monster! So I'm really excited. This is going to be a great time. Next up, we have Nightwing number 104 with the best cover. You cannot tell me otherwise. I love this stupid cover. For those of you who, uh, because this is an audio podcast, um, the cover is uh, homaging the meme of the I'm not a rapper video. It's it's fantastic. It's so good. Uh, written by Tom Taylor, art by C.S. Picat, as well as uh, Daniel HDR and Travis Moore. Uh, this book, it's just in rules. I've talked... I've talked your ear off at this point, I think, about how much I love this book. And now we're kind of getting a double dose, a double dip of Nightwing and the Titans. Now that Titans has dropped, which was phenomenal last week. I just got eked out of being in that tie, but wonderful, wonderful book. And I'm assuming that means that we're nearing the end of the Titans involvement in the Nightwing book. I am going to assume that all of that is now going to move over to the Titans book and Nightwing is going to be more solo adventures, but we'll see. Tom Taylor has a plan and I have faith in the Taylor, so I will be checking this out for sure. But let's get into the synopsis. Rise of the Underworld, part four of four, slash Night at the Circus, part four. Nightwing and the Titans realize the only way to save Olivia is... To go to hell. Seeing how ineffective his punching was when he last confronted Neuron's demons, Nightwing is temporarily powered up by magic in order to make it through the depths of hell alive. Literally. Then, in the backup, Nightwing and John Kent find an important clue as to who's behind the circus murders, and that person may be connected to Dick Grayson. Yeah, I love this book. I can't wait to pick this up. This has been such a wild ride, and I'm really excited to see where it goes next. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is, of course, Green Arrow number two, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Shawnee Zaxe, uh, or Isaacs, I heard recently. And if I've been saying that incorrectly this whole time, I'm going to be so mad at myself. Either way... Art's phenomenal in this book, and I really dug that first issue. Um, if you have been listening to the Explain Book Club, um, you know that I have a vested interest in this book because this next season, and I'll talk about it later on, does involve both Joshua Williamson as well as Green Arrow. So I am really, really stoked. The first issue I thought was great. I'm excited to continue this, you know, no road home for Oliver Queen to get back to the DCU while the while the Arrow family tries to find where he is. Uh, I just, I really dig it. I really dig it. I loved the reunion between Roy and Leon. So I am all in on this book. And from what I hear, this just got upgraded from a mini to a maxi. So let's keep buying this book and turn it into an ongoing, people! We can do this! But let's get into the synopsis. Far from home. Green Arrow is alive, but where the hell is he? That's what Roy Harper and Black Canary want to know, and their search takes them into the bowels of Bell Rev. But they'd better hurry. The stranded Oliver Queen and another lost member of the Green Arrow family are both being hunted by a brand new villain called Troublemaker. 
yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I just, I, I love that first issue. I'm really excited that uh, Ollie has his own book again, even though it's a Arrow fan book. I am totally okay with that because those characters don't show up in books either, even though Roy should be with the Titans. But you know what? Whatever, man. Whatever. It's fine. It's cool. It's cool. But yeah, I'm really excited. I love this book. I am really stoked to pick up issue two, and I believe that you should also pick this up. But that's going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got Justice Society of America number four, Action Comics number 1055, Unstoppable Doom Patrol number three, City Boy number one, The Sandman Universe, The Dead Boy Detectives number six, Tim Drake Robin number nine, Nightwing number 104, and Green Arrow number two. Some books ending, some books beginning, so I think now is a perfect time to end your bad habit of not picking up good comics and begin a new habit of hitting up your local comic book shop. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space. Raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast you can write literally anything you want i will be forced to read every single word as long as you give me those five stars the sky's the limit on what you can write and you'll be able to join the likes of our amazing fantasy 15 including seafire nd josh from panels to pixels matt draper burrito man 88 doug from for every kind of geek don swanson that guy brian mouth dork dallas meeks amazing spider fan a lock and az sass jedi jesse 20 ken 4656 and director hall I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews and i cannot wait to hear yours if you want to be part of the geek explained mailbag send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and i will read it here on the wednesday show if you want to keep up to date with the podcast participate in polls that decide future episodes or be the first to know when i drop announcements in regards to the podcast feel free to follow us on instagram and twitter at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained p-o-d for as long as Twitter is around and as I endeavor to continue to get better at Instagram. I'm working on it. It's it's a work in progress, but I'm trying to make it happen. And finally, every Friday we have the Geek Explained Book Club. Not this Friday, though, because we are in between seasons. We just wrapped up our season three, which focused on Grant Morrison's Batman, covering their entire run from the beginning of Batman and Son all the way through to the end of Batman Incorporated. We just wrapped that up last Friday, so if you haven't yet, go back in the archives, check out that whole season. We had a blast doing it, and you all seem to really enjoy it as well. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check it out if you have been listening to it thank you thank you thank you it's our most successful season of the book club so far when it comes to downloads and listens so really am eternally grateful for all of you who stuck on the ride with us and i hope you stick with us as we go into season four entitled brave and the bold this friday is going to be a break week so no uh no book club, but next Friday we'll be kicking off Joshua Williamson's Flash. As part of our Brave and the Bold season, we're going to be covering both the Flash Rebirth series as well as the Green Arrow Rebirth series. As kind of my homage and giving 
my celebration of the end of the Arrowverse, giving it up to the two shows that carried superhero television in the 2010s, that being Flash and Arrow. So we're going to be celebrating them for the rest of this year, covering the Joshua Williamson Flash run, as well as the Ben Percy Green Arrow run. That's going to be every Friday, because uh, Brave and the Bold Fridays are a real thing. So stay tuned for that next Friday, June 2nd, and we will be kicking that off. Really excited to kick off season four of the book club. Um, it's just been an absolute blast. My co-hosts Jacob Brown and Malcolm Russell Nelson are the best, and I could not picture me doing this book club with anybody else. So tune in for that next week. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this discussion that Doug and I had. I know I did. It's a lot of comics to be talking about. It's 60 years. 60 years worth of comic books and Doug and I broke it down for you. So we tried to make it as easy as possible if you are interested in a specific era to dive in where they're at. But Hopefully that helps somebody. And also, it's just good for me because I like to think of myself as an amateur comic historian. And uh, it's just good to be having that conversation with someone who is legitimately a big fan of the X-Men and can give me a run for my money with my X-Men knowledge. So uh, again, huge thank you to Doug for coming on for part three of X-Men 2023. Go subscribe to his YouTube channel for every kind of geek. It is incredible. He actually is in the middle of his own May festivities, Iron May, which I'm really excited about. So go check out his channel, subscribe to it, check out his X-Men videos. He did a whole hour-long X-Men retrospective on on the Hickman Krakoan era, and has continued to pump out amazing retrospectives on every single piece of X-Men and non-X-Men comic that you can find with scintillating wit, amazing visuals, and just the best voice on ComicTube. So go check that out, and once again, thanks to Doug for showing up on this week's episode. Next week, we are going to be wrapping up X-May 2023. It'll be our grand finale, and I am so freaking excited about it because I am going to be joined by Justin and Alicia of the Ex-Wife Podcast. I love their podcast. The Ex-Wife Podcast, an intro to X-Men comics, is the never-ending story of a man trying to get his wife to read X-Men comics. They've been going on for a very long time now. They started off during the pandemic, and they have been running strong to the point that you wouldn't even be able to tell if you went into the uh, current episodes who had the bigger X-Men knowledge. Justin and Alicia are amazing podcasters, amazing fans of comic books, and an even more amazing pair of people. So next week, we are going to ring in the finale of X-Men 2023 by deciding the best of X. We are taking 30 books! 30 books of the X-Men Krakoan era and deciding which one of them is the best. We have a whole bracket. I'll be releasing that on Twitter and Instagram so you can fill in your own brackets and you will be just surprised as we were. I put everything through a randomizer. Uh, Some of the matchups are very difficult. So join us next week for the best of X tournament and uh, that's going to do it for me. But 
I hope you join us. Uh, we are really, really excited to drop that episode and to celebrate the finale of X-May 2023. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained Book Club and for X-May 2023, I have been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.